0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome in to week seven of Talk of the Town here on Power 88. Brendan Howe, Alex Fuse, and we have a special guest this week, the Dean of Students here at Dean College, Dean Drucker. How are you doing? I am terrific. Thank you guys so much for having me on today.
1: Yeah, I'm excited. Thanks again for joining us. We'll be breaking down the World Series. We'll be talking the Bills and the Patriots game later on today. And I know Brendan has to be excited. The Red Sox are just one win away from winning the World Series.
2: I'll tell you, they, they usually say that uh, December is the uh, greatest time of the year. I, I I think it's I think it's now with the amount of sports we've got going on. I, I almost uh, called one of our trainers last night because I think I pulled something in my thumb with the remote control going back and forth between uh, college football, the World Series. Uh, this is this is a
0: terrific time of year. Well, guys, we have a ton of stuff to get into here today, starting with the World Series and topic number one. I don't know if you guys have had the opportunity to watch it all this year, but it's been an incredible series so far. Game three was the longest game ever by time on Saturday, and or Friday, excuse me. It's just been incredible. It's been absolutely incredible, the series we've had so far, and I don't know what you guys have been able to watch, but just
1: give me your thoughts. So just watching the Red Sox play and just really, once they defeated the Yankees, you kind of had this hope, if you're a Red Sox fan, just going forward this season and just knowing that, look, what the Red Sox have done all season long, they have 108 wins. And just going forward, just kind of see like what they can do. And if you're the Red Sox, you're just hoping you can just win tonight. I know you probably want this win to be in Boston, but just you're kind of just hoping that you can win tonight if you're the Red Sox and just know, okay, look, we won the World Series. It wasn't in our hometown. But just going forward, that's what you kind of have to do.
2: Yeah, I think no question. The one thing that the Red Sox have done over and over and over again is been able to manufacture uh, runs with two outs. And anytime you can do that, it's really deflating to a ball club. And once again, bases loaded last night. I think it was uh, Pierce hits one in the gap, a three-run score. Uh, you know, for the Dodgers, I think over and over again, you know, you get those two outs, you're almost out of the inning, and another back-breaking base hit. And you really have to just give credit to the Red Sox. Uh, up and down the lineup, uh, you know, Cora's just done an unbelievable job. You know, everything that he he touches turns to gold. You look even back to that to that Yankee series. Uh, he changed up the lineup. People a little nervous. Uh, you know, how's it going to work out? He's done it in every single series of the Yankees, the Astros, and the Dodgers. And uh, you know, it's it's. I think this is. You watch baseball enough, and you start to sense that certain teams are are teams of destiny. And um, I, I think the Red Sox are one of those teams. They just they have that never say die attitude and they really just they come through in the clutch. And I have to say, too, uh, I really think the Cora has truly outmanaged uh, Roberts. And I think that's been a big part of it. You look at the pitching every time that the reliever comes in, they talk about the Dodgers having rested relievers. And yet, whether it's Madsen or Jansen, they come in and, you know, the Red Sox hitters are, are you know, Last night again, uh, you know, uh, it was a two nights ago. Bradley hits a home run in in the eighth inning, and then uh, Pierce hits uh, hits another one uh, after Moreland. So you know the Red Sox have really taken advantage of that too. So you got to give full credit uh, full credit to them.
1: Now Dean Drucker, I was actually working the school dance last night, so the only I could only you know watch three innings of the game, but I was keeping updates on my phone. But you don't really get the full feel of the game just from updates on your phone. So of course I was watching the highlights. So I did not go to bed till two o'clock in the morning because the dance went till one AM yeah. and then we were back there cleaning up to one thirty. But, you know, it seemed like a interesting game. You know, if you're the Red Sox, you were down four late in the game and then you kind of just Hope that the offense can take over what they've been able to do the entire season. You know that's one of the major you know reasons why the Red Sox didn't go out and get a bullpen reliever at the end of the deadline because Dave Roberts, the owner, kind of Dave Dombrowski, excuse me, kind of believed, okay, look, the offense has really carried this Red Sox team the entire season. We don't need another guy in the bullpen. And look, let's be honest. After the first few games with the Yankees, that bullpen has one of the, been one of their highest you know points it's unbelievable because, you know, one of the biggest complaints that we had going into the series or the or the playoffs would have been the Red Sox bullpen. Mm-hmm. Well, the bullpen has really shown to be one of their focal points.
2: Yeah, no question last night. I mean, the Dodgers got as much out of Rich Hill that you could expect. I mean, he threw a terrific game. I think he'd only give it up one hit through six innings. And then Puig gets the uh, big three run home or they go up four nothing. And I think as uh, probably a, a Dodgers fan and I think probably in the dugout, uh, they assumed that was going to be enough to win, and uh, you know that's one of those situations where uh, you know your bullpen has to come in uh, and and close the door. And uh, I think it was the very next inning, Moreland hits the three run homer, and the, the tide had totally changed. You know, the ballpark that was going crazy uh, recognized. I think that uh, that they were in trouble, and mm-hmm. uh, the Red Sox they they looked they were down four three, and yet they they looked like the the much stronger team.
1: Yeah, and just like that's that been one of the most craziest things about this Red Sox team. They've been able to capitalize on the Dodgers, on the Astros, and on the Yankees. If you would have told me the Red Sox would have won all three games in Houston, I would have told you you're crazy. And just going back to it, beating the Yankees in four games. You know, yes, it's a best of five, but just knowing, look, they beat the Yankees, a 100-win team. They beat the Astros, a 100-win team, and now they're... Most likely going to beat the Dodgers, anything can happen. Crazier things have happened. Just look back at 2004. Um, Just going, you know, that mindset, look, this Red Sox team may go down in history as one of the best. And I've said this many times on this show. You know, everyone, you know, right now in the playoffs, we can't talk about how many wins you have had in the regular season because that means absolutely nothing. I know you're a Mets fan. Mm-hmm. So, like, let's say the Mets get into the playoffs and they win a World Series. No one's going to be talking about, oh, they only won 90 games. You know, they should have won the World Series. That doesn't matter in the playoffs. Well, the only thing that matters is who is the last team that's standing. And right now, it looks like that's going to be the Red Sox.
2: Yeah, I think at this point, uh, certainly, that's the great thing about sports. Certainly, anything could happen. And we could, you know, we could certainly be sitting here a, a week from now and the, and the Dodgers could have uh, come back and, and won all three. But, you know, I I think you, you just look at the momentum, uh, the the way that the Red Sox continually uh, come through, and uh, it's it, it's difficult to see right now. And uh, yeah, even if I think the Dodgers pull tonight's game out, you know, clearly uh, Cora is, has selected Price to throw tonight, and and I think we all know why that's why that's the case is because just like the Houston series, Price is throwing with house money tonight, right? He's giving Sale uh, two extra days of of rest. And, uh, you know, just like they were able to capitalize in Houston, Price goes out there tonight with absolutely no pressure on him. And that's where, that's where I think he's, he's at his best. He's in a warmer climate. He certainly liked that, likes that better than the cold. And uh, now you give Sale uh, two days rest. So um, I think this was kind of a no-brainer uh, for, for Cora. But, again, once again, I, I honestly wouldn't be surprised to see Price go out there and throw a gem tonight.
0: Yeah, guys, so just to jump back into the show here, sorry for that little technical difficulty we had in here, but Dean Drucker, to your point about David Price being a no-brainer, I think you're absolutely right. I think that Alex Cora knows that David Price will pitch better in warm temperatures and not risk going back to Fenway Park, and if it does have to go back to Fenway for a game six, you want your best guy on the mound, and that is Chris Sale. It might not appear to be that way you know, throughout the playoffs and with how he's performed, but... It, you know when it comes down to it you know chris sale is your stopper he's your ace he's the guy you brought here to be in those kind of situations and with david price going tonight i most people expected it to be sale but i kind of liked the decision for it to be david price he pitched in game 2 made a bullpen appearance and I, you know he's been warming up in the bullpen and we saw in series prior when he warmed up in the bullpen didn't come into the game but i think it helped him kind of as sort of a spot start if you will out of the, in the bullpen with just himself and i think it helps his psyche too because the thing is, with Price, he's he's a guy that learns by doing. He hasn't been a guy that's had success in the playoffs up until this season. So I really like the move to start Price. And I, Before the series, I predicted that the Red Sox would win in six games and Price would be the MVP. I thought that he would start game two as, as normally scheduled, and then he'd make a couple of bullpen appearances, and then it would really seal the deal for him. And I think... You know, some people can make the argument that he couldn't get out of the inning in that 18-inning marathon, the, you know, the other night, and that might help his, that might hurt his case. But the, the the thing is, if he goes out and throws a gem like you predicted, Dean Drucker, then I think that all but seals the deal for
2: him. Yeah, I, I, I really think too that uh, no one's really sure, other than the Red Sox, about uh, what Sale has been had been dealing with uh, the illness. He certainly, you know, he spent he spent the night in the hospital. And I think the one thing you've seen from a couple of his starts is his velocity has been down a little bit. Uh, location hasn't always been there. Um, and I think the Red Sox really want to give him as much time so that he can uh, take them out and truly look like Chris Sale. Uh, because I, I think there's, there's probably a lot more going on there, too, behind the scenes. I think that uh, they, they probably want to give him a chance to build up his strength as much time as possible. And honestly, there, there's really no reason for him to throw tonight. Um, you know, the, the Red Sox have three, three tries to get this done. So I th- I think this is this is the right move and once again you you look at, at this entire uh baseball playoff series and, and and Cora has pushed the right buttons every single time.
1: Yeah, and I just think David Price, look, you know, he's kind of like the Yankees, you know, when you look at David Price and the Yankees, you have to look and he almost works as like he's scared of the Yankees, you know, and you saw that in you know when he pitched in game 2. And just when the, the Red Sox gave him that confidence of putting him in the bullpen to bring him in Early on in the series, you kind of get back to bringing up Brendan's point of the psyche of David Price. Look, you know, the Red Sox showed confidence in him, and they haven't really shown confidence in him all season long because you talk about, okay, look, when he's facing the Yankees, he's, you know, you can't really put him in that situation. And just putting it back in the psyche, like Brendan just brought up, just it gives some kind of confidence to David Price. And maybe that's what David Price needed all season long, just to have some confidence that, look, the guys that are in charge here believe in me.
2: I agree. I think the the only interesting uh, piece I'll bring up it it you know it depends I guess what the score of the game is late uh, in the late innings. But uh, Kimbrel gave up a, a two run homer there in in the ninth and clearly didn't matter at that point because the Red Sox had created a cushion. I guess you know the one thing I I throw over to Brendan is you know does does Kimbrel scare you at all it, you know it's it's you oh, know it seems, seems like with with uh, each appearance uh you really not sure what you're going to get and um you know I remember him you know back when pitching for the for the Braves he he's got all the tools but uh you know certainly uh it's interesting to hear from, from Red Sox fans about uh, when he comes into the game what, uh, what your emotions are.
0: Oh, it's a heart attack every time. I don't think you can make an argument that Kimbrell does not make you nervous when he comes into a game, no matter what the situation is, if there's runners on, if there's anybody out. Uh, you know, Cora likes to be the guy that brings Kimbrell in for a four-out, five-out save at, at times, and we've seen Dave Roberts do the same thing with Kenley Jansen in this series, bringing him in for six outs. And uh, If I was a manager, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far ever with a closer, especially last night, bringing him in in the eighth inning. I don't know what that was all about I thought that was dumb you have you know Baez in the bullpen that's been lights out against the Red Sox and he's I think he's allowed two hits against us in the entire series and then you bring in Kenley Jansen who just pitched the night before and and you know gave up the gave up a home run
2: yeah I, I think unfortunately let's face it guys when, when you're on the losing end of of any series regardless of what sport um, the coach, the manager, is going to get questioned, right? We we all know that, and I, I think Dave Roberts is going to have a lot of questions to answer. Uh, you know, Jansen, he'd given up the home run to Bradley the night before, and as you mentioned, he's got a he's got a, a you know a, a bullpen that's you know he's got plenty of arms out there, and he, he brings Jansen in again in the eighth, and you know, deja vu. So. Uh, I think that uh, certainly after this series is over, if the Dodgers uh, don't come out on top, and you can say it's fair or unfair, that's just sports, uh, he's going to get a lot of questions about that.
1: And the same thing, it seems like, like you said earlier, everything that Alex Cora touches just turns to gold. And just if... Dave Roberts had just that one little gold. He might actually, you know, be ahead in this series. You look back, they struggled in game one and game two. If you're the Dodgers, you need to win one of those two games in Fenway. You can't go back home in your own ballpark already 0-2 in the series. It's just, you might as well just be 0-3 at that point because it's just so difficult, especially the Dodgers haven't had that much luck at home all season long. And just looking back, you you wasted Kershaw at you know, at Fenway, you, you know, it just, you haven't had that confidence factor at home and now you're back into a hole, you're down, you know, three, one in the series. It's going to be so difficult to come back now.
2: Well, I think what's interesting about baseball too. I, I always think that baseball is, is one of those sports where I, I don't feel like there's as much um, when you, when you're at home in terms of an advantage, I feel like some of the other sports uh, I just feel like there, there can be more of an advantage than there is in baseball. And yet, there's something about Fenway where the Red Sox are never out of any game, um, and I and I kind of felt that way with the Dodgers game last night. You look at the Red Sox; they're down four nothing. They certainly get the big hit from Moreland, but you you looked up and down that bench, and and you saw a team that said, "We're going to win this game." And and when you see when you see visiting teams uh, come into Fenway, uh, you just don't often see that um, and i you know as again as a as a mets fan uh, I, I don't know what's that what that's like um but uh, <laughs> it just seems like time and time again that team you know they can be down 5 1 6 1 and in all it takes is a couple of base hits and there's just something about about fenway that they just get on some kind of a roll and i uh, certainly the uh, give the fans credit for that as well there's there's something that happens where the other team just sort of uh you know Looks looks slow,
1: almost defeated before it even happens. Yeah, and I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but as a Yankee fan, what they've missed the entire season, you bring up the good point that it's so hard for teams like the Mets and almost like the Yankees. When they get down, there's like there's something with the Yankees. As soon as someone heads like a three-run, four-run home run, you kind of just, okay, we're not going to win this game. And you can kind of go to bed at that point. But what Machado has shown for the Dodgers is, is the reason why he's most hated is not because of his dirty slides. It's because when he's up to bat, you have a feeling he's going to do some kind of damage. No pun intended to the Red Sox. So just... (laughs) Um, looking at that, if you're the Yankees, I know we spoke earlier about this show, before the show, that you want the Mets to get Machado, but I am so, I want the other New York team to get Machado because Machado could add so much more to the Yankees, especially now knowing Dede Gregorius is having Tommy John surgery uh, this offseason. So just knowing that you're out of a shortstop, you're putting in a coming-out-of-season rookie year Glaber Torres in that position. So just adding Manny Machado to that lineup once Didi gets back, you already have Aaron Judge, John Carlos Stanton, Gary Sanchez. I could go on and on and on about all the different you know players the Yankees could put in their lineup next season. It's just Machado could add so much more depth to this Yankee team.
2: Yeah, I think one thing you've heard during this series is people have questioned Machado's hustle. Um, and, and I understand that there's been a couple of plays where it didn't look like he was necessarily legging things out. But the bottom line is he's a special baseball player. Yeah, He comes up to the plate you know something's going to happen. Some of it, some of his range of defense has just been phenomenal. Uh, so I, I, I think as a fan, um, anybody would want him on their squad. Certainly going to take a lot of money, and that's why I would probably say the Yankees are, are certainly one of the front runners because the, they, will, they will spend and they've, they've been known to spend. Uh, but he instantly upgrades your roster from mediocre to playoff contender. Uh, he, I mean, he's that important to not only playing short or third, but the middle of, your, middle of your lineup. So I think, you know, you're going to have one of these situations where every fan, as soon as the World Series is over, are going to start dreaming about some of these free agents joining their ball club. But the reality is there's probably about three different teams that can, uh, can afford him at this point, and that's just the, the reality of baseball.
0: You know, going back to your point, Dean Drucker, about how Machado is a player that, that brings your roster from, you know, dumpster level to potential playoff contender just look at what the Orioles did I believe it was 2014 I think when they were they won the AL East and they went into the playoffs and they ended up losing to the Kansas City Royals I I believe and that was one of the years where you look at the Orioles and they didn't have a pitching staff they didn't really have an outfield and it was really just Machado at third base that that produced along with Chris Davis at the time who also came out of nowhere from the Texas Rangers he set the strikeout uh, was pretty close to the strikeout record I believe and then came to the Orioles and you know clubbed 40 plus home runs So you look at that Orioles team, and that's really just a prime example of your point, Dean Drucker, is that Machado is that big, big caliber player that a lot of teams need across the league, but not necessarily can afford. I was at my cousin's house last night watching the game, and we were talking about that. You know, where is Machado going to sign? Where is Harper going to sign? And we were going through the list of realistic teams, and you know, the Yankees were were, came up in every conversation. So Alex, you know. I know you're going to like to hear this, but the Yankees (laughs) are going to be right back in the thick of things yet again. But last year I said on the Martello and Russo show here on Power 88 into the spring semester that when the Yankees signed or traded for Giancarlo Stanton, I wasn't scared of the Yankees. I said it on that show, and I I believed it throughout the entire season. And, you know, was I nervous going into the division series? Of course I was. I don't think anybody wasn't. But – the, you know the thing is I, the Yankees didn't really scare me. I knew the Red Sox had the capability to beat them. I just didn't know if they you know would live up to that expectation. I, I thought it all came down to if Cora managed the bullpen well, if he gave guys proper rest, if he made the right moves in the field. You know, riding the hot bats, which he's been which he's been doing. And I know he likes to go by the book with the left right matchups and all that. But sometimes he have to you know go off script a little bit and add lib. And that's what he's done over the course of the season and the playoffs as well. And I really think it's paid dividends.
2: Well, I I think honestly to me the most difficult series honestly for, for the Red Sox I think was Houston uh, and, and the reason I say that is because again hearkening back to uh, the, Red, the Red Sox ability to put runs on the board um, you know with two outs you know you look at the Yankees you look at the Dodgers very impressive lineups um, certainly again when you're looking at uh, you know the, the money spent to put all those rosters together you know you're looking at three of the, the you know top clubs uh, in Major League Baseball um, but I think the the issue that you have with the Yankees and with the Dodgers is that their lineups are feast or famine. You're either going to get a most times you're going to get a home run or you're going to get a strikeout. And uh, Houston's lineup to me is is one that manufactures a lot of runs. They're they're difficult one through nine. The next guy comes up and, and you, you're thinking to yourself, wow, you know how how did they put this this group together? Uh, I think Altuve being hurt, I think definitely hurt the Astros uh, big time. He he clearly was struggling. Uh, but that lineup just is so potent. Um, so I think one of the, the reasons the Red Sox have been so successful right now, honestly, against the Dodgers, is because of the it's very similar to the Yankees lineup right now. Is you know the Feaster famine. Just I, I don't see that working for seven games. It's um, you know it, it's really difficult, and I think that's that's why that you know you're you're seeing the Red Sox have the same kind of success that they that they did early on.
1: Look, we talk about just the pitching, and in the playoffs, pitching is so crucial, and I believe, you know, once the Red Sox passed the first hurdle in the New York Yankees, I thought the Astros were going to beat the Red Sox. You know, I kind of thought, okay, the Red Sox offense, you know, how is that going to go up against the best pitching staff in baseball in the Houston Astros? And when you look at the pitching rotation, Verlander, Keitel, Charlie Morton, just all those great guys, and then you look at their bullpen, and just going through that, pitching is so crucial in the playoffs, and... You know, that's how the Asher's won the World Series last year. That's how the Kansas City Royals won their World Series. You know, the Kansas City Royals was kind of like that first team to bullpenning, as a new term in baseball is called. You know, it's so, you know, unheard of for a pitcher to go past the sixth inning. You know, when Bueller, <laughs> a couple nights ago, when he went into the seventh inning, I'm like, this is, like, groundbreaking. Like, we haven't seen this in so many years. And just getting back to, you know, it's going to be like start games for pitchers now. You know, imagine. You know, I would have loved to tell pitchers like back, you know, 50 years ago. Yeah, your role here is going to be very short in like 50 years. Like, imagine telling like the all-time greats, like Sandy Koufax. Oh yeah, in like, you know, 40 years from now, the starting pitcher is going to go two or three innings.
2: It. it really is amazing the way the game has changed. Uh, certainly, uh, growing up uh, in the, you know, watching games in in the 80s, uh, the, when pitchers took the mound. Complete games were just they were they were just part of every week. You know, some guy was uh, you know throwing strong and, and you saw him throw nine and of course he yeah, the relievers would come in actually for three innings. Guys a warm, warm up in the pen. They'd come in for the seventh and eighth and ninth. And so most games you probably saw two pitchers. Um, and, you know some team maybe was on the losing end down a few runs. Then a middle reliever would come in. So you maybe saw three guys. Uh, it, it it really is incredible uh, the way the game has has changed. Um, and certainly, as we all know, and I think it frustrates the commentators because you you watch Smoltz and stuff as he's talking about these games, the pitch count uh, it it drives these guys crazy, and because they're all from an era where um, that didn't exist. If you were throwing a, a complete game and and you know you you were up by a couple of runs and your manager had trust in you. You stayed out there um, and you didn't, you know, and, and I know that the, the visuals are very different on TV, but you didn't see pitch counts on the television. You didn't even know how many pitches a guy had thrown until maybe the next day in the paper. Uh, so it is fascinating to see the, how the game has uh, really changed to, um, you know, it's certainly um, and it's all about analytics. Right. That That's the whole focus.
1: And I really think just in baseball now it's all pitch by pitch. And I think that's what really separates baseball from any other sports. You know, it's just like an instant matchup. Every single pitch matters. And especially in the playoffs, every single pitch is so magnified. And you could look back at just every, you know, if that pitch was just a little, you know, up closer to the plate or up closer, you know, it would have been a strikeout. And you don't see that in other sports. Yeah, sure, football, okay, you know, the tackle could have been a little earlier, but in baseball, it's just so completely different. And I think that's why, you know, baseball, I've said this on my Twitter page, but baseball is the most underrated sport of all time. And I asked Kurt Schilling this a few weeks ago, you know, if a 15 year old kid came up to you and told you that baseball is boring, they're never watching the sport, you know, what would you respond? And he goes, well, it takes a very intelligent person to understand baseball, so (laughs) I would call you dumb. And I had to steal that line from Kurt Schilling. Because, look, baseball is such a different sport from the NBA or NFL. You know, it's not about just knocking some guy out on the field. It gets back to, you know, the nooks and crannies. I love the stats. And I know you were a former team manager back in your college years. But just getting back to the focus of analytics, that's what baseball is. It's funny you
2: say that, Alex, because I certainly have had plenty of conversations with people who, uh, you know, use the analogy of of baseball to watching uh, grass grow. And I have to say, from from the time that I was young, and certainly with with my brothers, I have found the the, the game of baseball riveting. It's always been my my favorite sport to watch. Um, you know, sitting through nine innings for for me, and and being able to forecast each pitch that comes in, uh, each each hitter, uh, the way that they approach each at bat, um, has something that uh, I I have always found uh, incredibly intriguing and something. Uh, you know, my wife my wife unfortunately for her always comments you know when I get together, you get together with your brothers and you can talk baseball for for hours on end um, and it really it, it's true uh, but getting point back to your point Alex about baseball it it is it's a game of inches you know and I think you can look back to whether it was a certain at bat or somebody you know ball just going off the tip of somebody's glove um, and that's that's what makes the game great um, and it, it is true it's it's funny I, I find I can watch. 162 games uh, without an issue. I think there's certain sports where you kind of say to yourself, oh, I think I'll wait until the playoffs uh, when things get interesting. Uh, but I think for those who are true uh, aficionados of baseball, you know, I, I get the Major League Baseball uh, package uh, every single year. And part of it's, of course, because my, my the team I root for is out of market. Uh, but I have no issue with turning on a Detroit Tiger-Oakland A's game that uh, may be on at uh, 1030 and, and watching part of that. Um, just because I, I think it uh, really speaks to uh, the level of, of, of interest as, as a fan that we have of, of watching ev- every part of, of a game
0: definitely guys and i think that you know baseball's americas national pastime for a reason and baseball's going to the reason why baseball's going to be around forever is because it's not only one of the more entertaining sports in my personal opinion it's the, one of the most safest sports too you know you look at the nfl with all the concussion issue, issues issues yeah. that are being brought up and the nba with their lockout issues and you know the nhl is quickly losing popularity so you look at baseball and everyone's saying that oh baseball's too slow baseball's too boring and i get you know i get not everyone's going to sit through an 18-inning, seven and a half-hour marathon, and not everyone's going to sit through, you know, a four and a half-hour, five-hour, regular nine-inning game. But that's the beauty of it, I-, I think, is that you can just sit, sit on the couch, sit at home, and you know, with your loved ones, with your friends, with your family, you know, and just. Just talk baseball. Just just talk about anything, you know, and you have a game on in the background that you can just enjoy. And I think that's, you know, with so many fast-paced sports like basketball and football where there's so much actioning happening, you can't enjoy it. You, you know, you're so focused on the, the stats and the analytics of everything. And not to backtrack here, but to your point, Dean Drucker, about how the game has changed so much since you since you were growing up with the pitch count. Why does 100 pitches have to be the benchmark for a pitcher? That's what managers are still concerned with now is pitch count. And like you said, with all these pitchers that pitched in these 70s and 80s, pitch count wasn't even wasn't even thought of. And you know, these guys pitched until their arm hurt or until you know, until they, until they struggled. You know, 120 pitches, 130 pitches over the summer when I was broadcasting, there was a pitcher in college that threw 149 pitch no hitter.
2: Well, what it's actually created is it's actually created more positions. If you think about it, middle reliever didn't really even exist except if maybe you were getting blown out. Um, when I was growing up, it was your starter, and you went to the bullpen for your reliever, who was going to come in for three innings. So, the, what the pitch count has done, um, and I'm sure there's a lot of a uh, lot of pitchers out there that are thankful for it. It's actually created careers. Um, you know, the the middle reliever now has actually become part of every baseball game um and so for a lot of guys that has been all of a sudden you know before when you were growing up it was like oh is this going to be the starter or the closer um and now i think when guys are coming up it's are they going to be a starter are they going to be a reliever are they going to be a closer so it's interesting um how, how it's actually not only become part of the game but it's actually created a niche uh for a certain population of pitchers
1: and just looking at it now, like you just brought up a great point, where teams are now trying to get, they're not trying to get the best starters, they're trying to get the best bullpen relievers. Look at the Yankees, they had the best bullpen in baseball, and typically bullpen wins, you know, championships. Like I just said earlier in the segment about the Kansas City rules, they were kind of like that first team to bring in the bullpen and really start, you know, building that tradition to where we are now four years later. And, you know, like you just said, you know, it creates careers. You know, imagine how many starters. Dylan Patanches actually was a starter in the minor leagues. And now he's one of the best, you know, relief pitchers in all of baseball. You know, a guy that throws, you know, 100 miles an hour every single pitch for at least one inning, maybe two in the playoffs. You can count on him for two if you need him. Just, like, creating something like that. You know, there might be a guy that, you know, Might not be a great starter pitcher, but if he can be a great relief pitcher, well, he's still going to make some kind of money.
2: I mean, I definitely think some of the the pitch count too can can be related to these contracts today. I think the you know the there's so much uh, emphasis on the fact that when you pay these guys astronomical amounts of money, that if they get hurt, I mean, how often, unfortunately, we hear in guys they they just get into their prime of their career and then what do you do? You hear those. Deadly two words, Tommy John, right? And now you now you lose him for a year and a half. And I think that's what managers and, and uh, GMS are so concerned about is if we overuse this guy, he's going down for Tommy John surgery. Um, so it's almost like a, as a as a baseball fan, and I think this almost sounds ridiculous. A lot of times with some of these pitchers coming up, you say to yourself, "Well, have they already had Tommy John? Because that's good. Uh, that's that's great. It's already passed them, and now they'll now they'll be good for the rest of their career with their bionic arm." Um, and, I, and I think that's where the, the pitch count really has come into play is everyone is so concerned about, you know, if this person goes down for surgery, we likely caused it because we, we let him throw too many pitches. Um, but, I, again, when you look at I, I I'm obviously as a huge Mets fan. I, I love hearing uh, Ron Darling, and he's he's been an analyst for, uh, for a lot of the um, division series. But you listen to Darling, you listen to Smoltz, um, it, it literally uh, you can, you can you almost feel their the anger in the booth when these guys are getting pulled from a game and they're pitching an absolute gem or maybe they're just not even getting lit up but they're certainly in control and they're getting lifted uh in in the fifth and the sixth inning and uh but i think it's just it's just where we are i, th- I think it's just where the game is and i think as a fan you just need to, need to accept that
0: going back to your point about the tommy john surgeries too Dean Drucker i think that's what most people are taking into consideration of why Nathan Uvalde's performance was so impressive he's not he's had not one but two Tommy John surgeries (laughs) so you look at that and you say oh well this guy obviously struggled earlier on in his career with health issues and now that he's back he's still throwing 98 99 100 miles an hour in his seventh inning of relief And, and he even pitched in games one and two so coming off of three straight days when you're pitching and you're still throwing 98 99 that just proves, I think, you know what Tommy John surgery can do for you, but it also costs you, you know, depending on the severity, a year, a year and a half of your career. And Alex, you know, the Yankees are suffering from this right now too, because Didi Gregorius has gone down with Tommy John, and he's—I think—he's going to miss the entire season. Is that right?
1: I believe he will be back before the All-Star break.
0: Oh, okay. So not as long as I, you know, anticipated, but still, you know, we're even seeing it with with position players now, and I think that's you know, to the point of, of how physical the game has become and, and how much more active these players are going to have to be. You know, Gregorius is a shortstop, and he doesn't have to make, you know, a far throw or he doesn't have to throw as hard as he can every time like a pitcher does. Shohei Otani as well, he, he's not a primary pitcher. He hits as well. So I think it's just fascinating to see, you know, how much the game has changed and what position players are having to go through nowadays.
2: Yeah, I mean there's been a lot of discussion and certainly not my expertise, but uh they've they often talk a lot about <clears throat> whether it's the uh, the NFL or Major League Baseball is that the the lifting routines that these guys ha- these guys have are very different than you know growing up again from the the earlier eras the 60s, the 70s, 80s there's there's so much more invested into weight training and things like that. And I think people often wonder is that the cause of some of these injuries is overexertion um with with the lifting and the and the weight training. I don't know. I mean, I think it's 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 certainly up for discussion. But as you said, it it is a little bit bizarre that we're starting to see middle infielders go down with with Tommy John surgery. Um, and maybe it was just something that wasn't diagnosed uh, back then. Maybe they called it a, a, a different injury back then, and we're just seeing the same thing. But it, it is a little strange that we can send we continue to see middle infielders um, suffer from this.
1: Yeah, and just like Glaber Torres a few seasons ago, he had Tommy John surgery. And just looking back at it now, and it's just a whole conversation. And there was a catcher that just had Tommy John surgery, too, a few catchers. So now you just get back to the, you know, just the position players that are now under the attack of this Tommy John surgery. And you look at it and you have to gauge, especially when you look in the offseason. By the way, I have to change the topic here for a second. If you're the Boston Red Sox, you have to spend all your money on Nathan Nivaldi. You can't just sit on a guy like that. I've been saying this the whole playoffs. You need Steve Pierce and you need Nathan Nivaldi. Look, Brendan, if the Yankees had Nathan Nivaldi and Steve Pierce, they would still be playing right now. Oh, absolutely. I don't think there's any question about it. Those two
0: guys were the key factors in that series. And, again, again, I don't mean to backtrack here, but you're absolutely right. And the Yankees did have Nathan Nivaldi at one point, so if they ever held on to him, you know, things could have been very different. So, you know, for Dave Dombrowski to find, you know, a, a diamond in the rough, so to speak, with Nivaldi down in Tampa Bay and just bringing him up, you know, I, I wrote an article about this the other day. Nobody expected Nivaldi to take on the role that he has in, this, in these playoffs. And for him to do what he's doing, uh, you know, him and Joe Kelly share the same agent. So he must be ecstatic right now because those two guys are earning themselves a lot of money.
2: I have to say, as, as somebody who, who does not watch the Red Sox every single night, I, I've been really impressed with Joe Kelly. Um, I, I, Every single night, uh, he's been a, a linchpin um, of getting to that bullpen. I've been really impressed, certainly a lot of credit to avaldi But honestly, when I look at somebody who will probably be an unsung hero at this point, it, it's Kelly. I, The movement on his ball, uh, he comes in at some really difficult times. They talked last night quite a bit between the 18-inning game and then last night's game of how many pressure pitches had been thrown. It seems like he is the one that that is is go-to in some of the most uh, pivotal moments of every single game. So, I mean, when you talk about pressure pitches – I got to tell you,
0: I actually think that he has been the most impressive guy that I have seen throughout this series. I completely agree, and I didn't agree with leaving him in for the eighth inning last night. I thought Cora might be pushing him too far, and you know, I thought he might just come in to get the right-handed Puig and then let him go, let the, go get the lefty for Bellinger because he had Price warming up. So I'm like, I, I was thinking, you know, I wasn't quite sure what his thought process was, but you know, once he left him in to face the lefty, I was like, he's, oh my God, he's going to try and sneak him through the eighth inning and you know, get right to Kimbrell. So when you get when you look at it that way, with with the way that Kelly has been brought into these games and the type of situation, it's been it's it's been unbelievable. And throughout the season, Alex, I know you were criticizing the Red Sox bullpen all season long for how bad they've been, but you know I think you have to give credit where credits due. They've really buckled down in these playoffs, and I think that's been the most impressive aspect of this entire Red Sox playoff run.
1: Yeah, I said this earlier in the segment, just how crucial this bullpen has been. When you look back at the Red Sox, you know. Uh, at the trade deadline, that's why Dave Dombrowski said, Okay, we don't need any more relief pitchers because we have confidence in the offense right now. The Russians have the best offense in baseball. Let's be honest, they do. And when you look at how they performed last night, you know, they're down four. 0 you know, against the Dodgers, probably the third best team in baseball. And y- Look, if you're the Red Sox, you have some kind of confidence that okay, we have Mookie Betts, we have JD Martinez, we have guys like this that can hopefully get us back into the game. Devers has been so important to this Red Sox team. You know, ever after that, you you know, you talk about oh, should we put Devers in or should we not? Should we put Nunez in there? And just getting back to just knowing the fundamentals of baseball, Devers has been so crucial to the team. You get Adam into the bunch about you know Ivaldi and just Steve Pierce, just how crucial it's been. For these two teams,
2: that that's a great point, Alex. You you have to mention Devers. Uh, we you look at even that home run that he hit uh, in Houston. You know he when he went opposite field too. That guy, the plays he makes over a third, uh, clutch hitting. Again, some you know some some of these people I'm not uh, some of these guys not as familiar with. He he comes through. It seems like every single time. It's funny you look at these averages and they'll say oh they're they're seven for fifteen. You're like really because I feel like every time I watch this guy he gets a base hit, I don't know when he actually got out. Um, Devers certainly fits. Uh, I think that that particular particular group. But I think going back to your your piece about you know talking about Dumbrowski, they say this all the time, and it becomes a a, a cliche uh, if you will. But you need twenty five guys uh, to win the whole thing. And it seems like every single night Cora has gone with a different combination, and every night it's a different group of guys that come through. So cliche or not, this twenty five man roster up and down they come through every single night. And, you know, you, I know you, you probably, it sounds like you criticize the Red Sox bullpen, and, and obviously during a 162-game season, there'll be a lot to criticize about a lot of different teams. But at the end of the day, you don't win 108 games by mistake. <laughs> so clearly this team, this team was built for a long run, um, and, and at least to this point, because you never want to get ahead of yourselves. Uh, but to this point, um, it certainly um, has paid dividends for, for Dabrowski and for Cora and the whole Red Sox organization.
1: Look, everyone's talked about the Yankees season, and when people were talking about at the deadline, you know, the Yankees are having a great season, but the Red Sox are having a legendary season. And right now, if the Red Sox win tonight or win the next three games, that will, this season could possibly go down. It's probably neck and neck with 2004, and they're not beating on a curse this year, but they are just legendary season. And you, as a Red Sox, you know, fan, Brendan, it has to just be, you know, some kind of mindset. Okay, wow, we just witnessed some kind of history. But next year, you can't really go into, okay, we're going to beat, you know, win the World Series again, because you kind of have to take this season, take it for what it's worth, and kind of maybe let someone else take over. You can't really let this season bleed into next season if you're a Red Sox fan.
0: Oh, no, of course not. And I don't think any team can really do that in any sport. I think every you can take every season one season at a time. You know, you enjoy the offseason. You enjoy the parade. You enjoy, you know, everything that comes with winning a championship. And then, you you know, you get set for next season. You enjoy it for a few months, and then you have to get back to your workout regimen. You have to get back to dieting. You have to get back to, you know, training and, and all those different things that go into preparing for spring training in February. And so, you know – Again, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself because there is still a game to play tonight and, and Clayton Kershaw is on the mound for the Dodgers. So that's no easy that's no easy task. And especially in an elimination game, you know, Kershaw is going to bring his best stuff. So uh, this has been a great conversation. I mean, to cut it short, but if you guys had to give one final prediction for the rest of the series or even tonight's game, what would it be?
2: I think actually the Red Sox close it out tonight. Uh, I really think they've they've got all the momentum. I, I think you're going to see another close game, I uh, you know, back and forth, 2-1, 3-2. Uh, but, but I think time and time again, it, it they they come up with that big hit with two outs. And I think it's going to happen again tonight. There's no reason uh, to think it's, it's going to play out any differently. I think certainly if it does go back to Fenway and you've got Sale on the mound in game six, I think they're the heavy favorites anyway. But um, to be honest with you at
1: this point, I'm going to be surprised to see it go back to Fenway. Yeah, I think from a baseball fan standpoint, look, it would be great. Yeah, I just want more baseball. So I'm going to be very, um, you know, biased about this. I would love it for it to be a Game Seven here in Boston, especially being here as a Yankee fan. Yes, I know as a Yankee fan, you don't want you know the Red Sox back here, but just I. I weighed my options. I'm like, do I want to see all the people here cry, or do I want them to see happy? And I have a lot of professors here that are Red Sox fans, so I want them to be happy, especially with the... <laughs>
2: well, uh, and, and to your point, look, the, the bottom line is that they're, and regardless of what the sport, there's always something magical about seeing a team clinch in, the, in their home field, right? And in Super Bowl aside, because that's played at a neutral site, I, I think that one thing that is a fan... It it very it, really, it really is part of the atmosphere is team seeing a team celebrate on their home field. And I've certainly talked to Red Sox fans who have said, you know, I'd like to see them lose a couple of games so they can win back in Fenway. Yeah, there's there's part of me that says, be careful what you wish for. That that's dangerous territory. The bottom line is you want them to clinch when you want them to clinch, right? Go have fun at the parade. Don't worry about where it is that it, the the final out is made. I I think that's dangerous to to want it to come back to Fenway. Because anything can happen in sports. Um, but I think, it, it, you know, to your point, certainly as a fan, you want to see them celebrate at home. I think that, I think as, as a fan of any team, that's certainly how you want the script to play out. Um, but but I, I I don't know that you should be rooting for them to lose
1: to come back to Fenway. Look, if you're a Red Sox fan, you have not had the opportunity once this season to celebrate at home. The clinch of the division was at Yankee Stadium. The Red Sox beat the Yankees to clinch the American League Divisional Series in Yankee Stadium. They won the ALDS in Houston. So now they could win the World Series in L.A. So if you're the Red Sox, you kind of. Look, if you're a Red Sox fan, you want them to get it over with tonight and win the World Series. But you kind of have to like have that bias where we kind of want something to win here in Boston because they have not had the opportunity all season long.
2: Look, as somebody who's who's a uh, you know somebody who's moved up to the New England area, I frankly think the fans have been quite spoiled up here. Um, you know, I, I think for for fans up here, I, I think your focus should be more on the duck boats and 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 less about where they clinch. To be perfectly honest with you, I think there there's probably is a player. There's something there's there's a a really good feeling about knowing that the opposing team's uh, staff is going to have to clean up after you spray champagne all over their facility, too. I think that there's there there's a certain uh, um, enjoyment that a player gets from that. So uh, I I don't know. I I think if 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 you if you're if if you're a fan and you want this thing closed out, I, I don't I think you want it closed out as quickly as possible.
0: Yeah, Alex, you mentioned this to me before the show. You asked me, you know, what are your thoughts for tonight? Do you want the Red Sox to lose and come back to Fenway, or do you want them to just clinch tonight? And I said that, you know, I don't really care where it is. I just want them to win. Mm-hmm. And I've talked to a lot of Red Sox fans as well that have said, you know, oh, I hope they come back and win it in six. You know, And nobody said I want them to win it in seven because, just like you said, Dean Drucker, you know, everything, anything can happen in sports, and we know that all too well here in New England, especially with, you know, the, the past Super Bowls we've had to experience. So, the thing with that is, I just want the Red Sox to win. You know, tonight, and I would, I would love that. I don't want it to see have to come back, you know, whatsoever. I want them to just get it over with. And you know, like you said, celebrate at the parade.
2: Well, here and here's the issue too. You come back for Game Six, right? Sale's on the mound. You're feeling good about things. I don't particularly think that Sale looks like himself right now. I don't. Um, and so while he's certainly your go-to guy, I mean, he he's the top guy in the rotation. He's the guy you want on the mound. Let's say that you end up losing a 2-1 a, a game with Sale on the mound, and he does pitch a beauty, right? And now you've got game seven, right? And that's it. So as a fan, now all of a sudden where it felt great because you had this cushion and you wanted them to come back to Fenway, somehow you don't come out on top in game six, and now everything's riding on a game seven. I, I, don't, I don't think you want to go through that. You know, I, I have to say, as someone who doesn't have a rooting interest in this, as you said, Alex, like, I love series that go go longer than they're supposed to because you don't have the same kind of nerves. You know, when I'm, when I'm watching my team, I have to eat the same thing every single night. You know, the superstition plays out. Uh, but the longer that goes on, the more nervous and the less sleep I get. So I, I would not want to risk this uh, going back to, to game seven either.
0: Absolutely not, guys. Well, thank you for that great discussion. We're going to take a quick break here and be right back on Talk of the Town. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back here on Talk of the Town. Brendan Howe, Alex Fuse, and Dean Drucker with you, taking you up until the 12 o'clock hour here on Power 88. You know, we just had a great discussion about this World Series and baseball in general, but it is a football Sunday, guys. So we are gonna jump into some football right now with the Patriots and the Bills, who actually don't play today. They play tomorrow night on Monday night football on ESPN. Patriots coming in at five and two, the Bills at two and five. Guys give me just your, your overall thoughts about how these two team seasons are, are shaping
1: up. Look, we talked about earlier in the year about the Patriots and how they struggled early on. But if you're a Patriots fan, look, you kind of expected that. And with the Patriots season, you you talk about, okay, what happens if Gronk is hurt? Is he retiring or not? You know, you talk about Brady. You know, he's getting up there, you know, with concussion injuries. You know, what's up with him? You talk about Belichick. I've said this all year round. Uh, Belichick seems different this year. He kind of like lost the Belichick touch. That's what I've been saying. And he has to be nearing his end as a tenure here as a head coach and you know for the Patriots I think um going forward that win last week for the Patriots was so crucial and they were so close to losing it and especially you can't go into this game against the Bills it's in Buffalo so you can't really just be overconfident we talked about you know the Patriots you can't just have that expectancy to win when you might not especially the Patriots have struggled pretty much all season long when they're on the road, uh, they kind of are a different team on the road. They kind of played scared. And um, last week, you kind of saw that. Tom Brady, you know, never really seemed scared, but the other guys seemed scared. And you know, that's a really different Patriots scene where we haven't seen. And I think just, that goes back to Bill Belichick. I just think this season's different from other seasons. I don't know what's. Different about it, but I don't I don't know. I think the Patriots are going to beat the Bills, but just don't be overconfident. I said this last week. You never know what could happen. Um, so I think the Patriots are gonna win.
2: Look, I, I think anytime you have a, a a road game in the division, uh the Patriots uh, you know, have struggled a few times in, in Buffalo and it's uh it's a primetime Monday night game. And certainly the fans in, in Buffalo, I think, are uh uh certainly do a good job of of getting the energy of the team up, but at the end of the day, I saw a stat yesterday uh, where Brady is 28 and three against the Bills. Um, so uh, to expect the uh, the the Bills to win tomorrow is 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 might be might be a, a bit far fetched. Yes, the Patriots have not necessarily looked like the Patriots this year, uh, but I think we have to remember that Edelman was out for a couple of games. Uh, Josh Gordon was just getting to know the offense. Um, Gronkowski again has has been in and out uh, depending on uh, with with injuries. So I think the Patriots still have the ability uh, to put a lot of points on the board. Uh, you know, Brady has a lot of weapons. He gets rid of the ball very quickly. Uh, James White has looked terrific, even when um, uh, was that Michelle went down with, with an injury. Um, you can always count on White to score a touchdown. And, uh, you know, we even talked about uh, Chris Hogan. You know, he ends up being a, like the fifth option. It seems like every time they play in Buffalo – he catches a bomb for a touchdown, so I w- I wouldn't be surprised if, if that happens again. So, um, again, it's on the road, it's in the division. Uh, I'm sure uh, I haven't seen the forecast, but it's Buffalo at night uh, in in October. I'm sure it's going to be cold, uh, but I I just don't see how you you look at this Bills team and and yes, they had that upset win against Minnesota that everyone I think was was stunned as that score continued throughout uh, throughout the entire Sunday a few weeks ago but that that team after making the playoffs last year they unfortunately they they look like the bills and that's not a good thing so I I think you're looking at maybe like you know 27 13 maybe 31 14 I I just don't you know the game may be close for a quarter or two but I just don't see it four quarters. <laughs>
0: Yeah, you know, normally these kind of road games, like you said, Dean Drucker, games in the division, especially for the Patriots on the road, you know, we, don't, we know they don't play well down in Miami especially, but, you know, these games kind of tend to be trap games for mm-hmm. New England every once in a while, and this could be looked at as one of those games. You know, you're traveling, it's, you know, a Monday night game, which you're not used to playing. It's a night game in Buffalo, so you're right. It is probably going to be cold up there. But I saw a stat yesterday, to your point about Brady being 28-3 and in Buffalo, he's played a full season at Buffalo. And he's 14-2 and two in those 16 games that he's played up in Buffalo. So, you know, Brady's, Brady knows how to beat these guys, and especially now with this kind of depleted roster that they have, it, it's really not, you know, the, the Bills team that we saw last year that made the playoffs. Uh, coming in at 2-5, and five, you know, their their quarterback's, you know, controversy up there has been, you know, prominent throughout the whole season. Uh, it's been kind of lackluster defense being played. Their secondary. They've lost a few guys. You know, Tredavious White is out with an injury. Um, when you look at it, you know the Patriots coming off a close win last week in Chicago, which really probably shouldn't have been that close at all because the secondary really kind of let them back into the game, and that hail mary at the end, at the end never should have even happened. But you know thirty eight thirty one in that one, you know the Patriots offense is completely fine. It's the defense that I'm worried about. But you know of course going up against the Bills offense, which isn't all that hot either. I think the Patriots should be fine. I think your uh, my prediction, if I had to make one, probably thirty six thirteen along those lines.
1: Look, what separates the Patriots from every other NFL team is the ability for the Patriots coaching staff and players to step up and to really make themselves a really great player. You look at Sony Michelle, that player right there, Sony Michelle is so crucial for the Patriots going forward. It depends on how long he's going to be out for. I expected it's just going to be a few weeks. Um it's not going to be a really long injury, but just the ability to step up and just be in that big role. You if you're the Giants, you would have loved for someone to step up and be so crucial for them. The Patriots are just able to just keep turning players into monumental players and then they eventually go on and create a better NFL team. You look at the Rams you know, look at you, you look at Damian Medola. You can lose star guys like that and still be the division leader, you know, in the Patriots. So the ability, and you have to go back. Bill Belichick is the greatest coach of all time in the NFL, and he will go down as the greatest coach of all time, especially being Tom Brady's quarterback. But you look at even, um, just everyone on the Patriots have that ability to step up and be in that big position role where you are able to just become the next star of the Patriots.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, Belichick, obviously, you know, as a Giants fan, Belichick is a uh, Par- Parcells disciple, right? And what was Parcells' uh, big, you know, his mantra was, I want to buy the groceries, right? And that's what that's what Belichick has done is, is you know, P- he fits new pieces into that puzzle every single year. And some of it are older guys on the on the backside, and I think um, everyone admit that Josh Gordon at this point is is a risk only because of his, his past history. But the Patriots, every single year, they'll lose guys, and and they just seem to find that right fit uh, for for their offensive scheme, um, and they really just don't seem to miss a beat. Um, as you know, as an outsider, it's a, you know, you have to admit you you know I admit it, pretty jealous uh, watching this tea, team every single year. Uh, just find ways to get it done. You know, you're looking at tomorrow's game. So you know, or Monday night. Uh, you know, the by the way, the Bills have scored 81 points this entire season. Um, that ranks dead last. So again, when you're looking at the Patriots' offense, regardless if it's a division game, it's just hard to see them putting enough points on the board to really to really make it competitive.
1: Look, the Patriots motto is do your job and that's just ingrained in every single Patriots player and I think that goes back to my point from earlier just every single player just has that ability to step up and be so crucial in a major play or in a major game. So just going through that and just doing your job, I've said this earlier in the season, just the Patriots struggled early on, yeah but if Tom Brady does his job, if Bill Belichick does his job if Gronkowski does his job if everyone does their job they're going to win and if you're the Patriots or a Patriots fan you have some kind of confidence every single season going into it we're going to be in it till the end or possibly even win the Super Bowl
0: you know Alex you just mentioned Rob Gronkowski in, the, in your last spiel there but the thing is you know Rob Gronkowski has been out for a couple of weeks now and he's questionable to play tomorrow but normally you would think with the kind of the kind of caliber tight end that Gronkowski is you would think that he's a necessary piece of that puzzle that you mentioned Dean Drucker to, to every single week but being you know arguably the best tight end of all time but we've seen the Patriots win without him the, you know they won the Super Bowl you know without him a couple of years ago so One of the things that is so interesting about this Patriots offense and what makes this kind of engine go is the fact that you know Brady can take anybody and you know take them, make them from trash to glorified recycling. So you know the thing with the Patriots is those pieces of the puzzle get filled every single year, and and it's you know it works, and they find ways to you know they start the season slow every single year, and people that overreact to those one and two, two and two kind of starts that the Patriots have that that's a normal thing you know that's kind of a regular kind of appearance for, for the Patriots you know four weeks into the season and Dean Drucker you mentioned Edelman being out Josh Gordon being added into the puzzle you know Chris Hogan dealing with some nagging injuries and I think what you're what you're seeing right now is all those guys coming back and you know they're getting their chemistry worked out they're ironing out the kinks and I think that's really you know the kind of Patriots offense we're used to seeing it's now just the defense that has to follow suit.
2: Well I think one thing the Patriots were struggling with, honestly, was really not having a deep threat. And I think that's what Josh Gordon brings. And and the farther you get into this NFL season and the, the more he becomes comfortable with the Patriots offensive scheme, I think the more dangerous they are. And if you're an opposing team, uh, the later you play them in the season, I think the more challenges you're going to have against them. I, I think, to be honest with you, but with Gronkowski out um, at certain times and with with Gordon learning the offense, I I think the Patriots, honestly, were, were pretty one-dimensional. And so you, you look at that early record, and I think it's a little bit deceiving. Um, sure, the Patriots are certainly aging, and, and one could make that argument that, uh, that Brady is not who he once was and nobody's going to be um, at, at, at his age as quarterback. Uh, but I think the, the amount of weapons uh, coming back from injury, the more comfortable um, that, that, that the newcomers get with the scheme, I think you're going to see you know, Brady's uh, offensive playbook expand and I think it's going to be really difficult. Uh, you know, the Patriots, at least recently, have really never pr- prided themselves on defense. It's, it's, it's more about outscoring the opponent. And I feel like that's the way this team is going to be built again. You know, the, the other team is going to put points on the board. Um, and, yes, sure, just like we talked about with baseball, you know, as a fan, you're going to critique your team, right? And you're going to, you're going to pick apart the things that aren't going well. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, that eight that offense is just it's very difficult to stop Brady has that you know he has that quick release he has a lot of those quick slants I think the Patriots better than anyone um, they have those um, and I don't want to call it illegal but I think the Patriots do the pick play uh better frankly than anybody else and they find Edelman for those seven and eight yard uh backbreaking plays on on first and second down leaving him with a short third down and and Brady'll just you know follow his offensive line you know for for three yards for a first down and they just keep drives going, and I think they're they're just you, you watch them and you say, why can't my team do this? Um, the bottom line is that they're well coached. Um, you know, you've got Brady, who is basically a, a second head coach um, on the field, and I, I think it, it, at the end of the day, it it drives probably opposing defensive coordinators crazy that they just can't get off the field.
1: I brought this point up earlier in the season, and I said this earlier. Uh, If the Patriots don't win the division, I think they will now. But back when they were struggling, is Tom Brady going to retire if they don't win the division? And a lot of people said no, but I just wonder if that's just Patriot fans not wanting to let go of Tom Brady. And if you're a Patriots fan, you are not looking forward to that day because there's really no future for the Patriots once Tom Brady's gone. I'm sorry, I'm a Patriots fan, but there's not. There's no backup plan, especially now. Yeah. Like what happens, you know, knock on wood. If you're a Patriots fan, you're uh, hoping that yeah, this does not happen. But if he goes down with an injury, you're calling up the Giants to ask for Eli Manning. I, yeah, I think I think it's more than that. To be honest with you, I think
2: um, I wouldn't be surprised to that when Brady finally decides to hang it up, and who knows when that will be. At this point, he might play till he's fifty. Um, but I think at the same time, I I think you're going to potentially hear a lot more about Belichick uh, potentially hanging it up as well. Um, so I, I think at that point, the bottom line is, yes, I mean, the Patriots franchise will change. Um, but I, but I think that's just part of sports, right? I mean, you think, you think about how long this dynasty has been uh, in, in an age of free agency, what the Patriots have done is just absolutely astounding. I'm sure you could probably listen to any sports talk show and and people have been saying that for, you know, for 15 years now, uh, the fact that they can do this year in and year out is, is just simply remarkable. And, you know, all the credit to Belichick because he gets players to play. In you watch those sound bites um, every single week. And, and it, it, you know, every single player, they they don't say anything that makes the headlines that, you know, bulletin board material. It's just, you know, on to the next week. And, and yeah, you, you can probably say as, as a fan watching it or as an outsider that it's very vanilla and it's boring. Um, but really what it is is he has everybody buy in. The, you you enter that you enter that stadium right and if you're not going to fall in line with what the recipe that he, he's brewed up there then you're not going to be on the roster anymore and I think you're also finding a lot of guys that are saying hey especially you know that are four or five years into their into their tenure in the NFL um, I want to get a ring and if I'm going to get a ring where's it going to happen well it's most likely going to happen in New England let's be honest so I think that that's been a huge part of of Belichick um, in his era. And frankly, I'm just not sure every coach is able to do that.
1: Look, and you talk about the Patriots, they are kind of remind me of the Yankees of the NFL. And just, you really wouldn't, you know, no facial hair. You know, it just goes back to that very vanilla. And getting back to your point earlier about Josh Gordon's past history, I was very surprised personally that the the Patriots wanted to go get Josh Gordon knowing his past history. You know, he was, you know, suspended and all that, you know, dealing with injuries and just that he really wasn't, you know, facing, you know, the face of the franchise. They didn't, that isn't a guy that they really you know, wanted if they fit the code of the Patriots.
0: Guys, this is a great discussion. I'm going to have to hit the pause button right now. We're going to take a quick pause for station identification and a quick PSA right here on talk of the town. Stay with us. Welcome back here on Talk of the Town. Brendan Howe, Alex Fuse, and Dean Drucker here just past the 11 o'clock hour. We're taking you up until 12 o'clock here on this NFL Sunday. And, Dean Drucker, during the break, you said you had something you wanted to bring up, so I'll let you have the floor.
2: Yeah, well, I, I think it's interesting, again, getting back to, um, it, you know, just looking at somebody like a, a, a Josh Gordon. You know, I think one of the the, the conversations I often have uh, with people regarding the Patriots about, you know, you look at each individual uh, person on that team and you could, you could do this back, you know, 10, 10, 15 years. And there's a part of me that wonders when some of these guys excel and this includes Tom Brady. So I know this is going to get Brandon really fired up is how much of it is the player and how much of it is the system? Uh, Because you see some of these guys come in and they truly excel and you just look at somebody, let's look at Josh Gordon, right? Josh Gordon, let's say that he doesn't go to the Patriots. Let's say he goes to any other team in the NFL. Is he excelling right now? Or is he continuing to be an issue? Is he continuing to have off-the-field problems and, and potentially derailing his, his career? And I think when you look at, at all the people, and I say including Tom Brady, because I, I truly believe Tom Brady is one of the greatest quarterbacks, um, but I also think that if Tom Brady, let's say that Tom Brady the last 15 years was on the Cleveland Browns, is Tom Brady? Tom Brady.
0: I would say yes, and to get your point about Josh Gordon, I'm not to say that the Cleveland Browns are, you know, Tom Brady's going to be Tom Brady with all his Super Bowl rings because the Cleveland Browns are not a Super Bowl contending team. That's not what I'm trying to say. You know, I'll start with Josh Gordon and the fact that he's excelling here in New England so far and and getting. You know, I would tell you that. You know the system is in place. There is a system in place, and there is a system in every organization. But I'm going to tell you that it it is also the player. Mm -hmm. I think it's a a little bit of a mixture of both. I think that because you can look at Chad Ochocinco, who came in and struggled. Mm -hmm. So you know that it's not to take anything off of his talent, because Ochocinco is one of you know the best wide receivers of you know the last 10 years or so. So. I think when you look at that aspect of it and say, all right, there are players that have came come in here and struggled and not picked up the playbook, not gotten along with coaching staff, players, and that's not to say that that's a knock on any any team system you know, that's in place. But, you know, as far as Brady goes being a system-type quarterback, that's what gets me going. That's what grinds my gears because <laughs> system quarterbacks don't set records. System quarterbacks don't throw for 50 touchdowns in a year or win five Super Bowls or, you know, set passing yards records or, you know, can take, you know, any player and and make them into a a great receiver. And that's where people get kind of crossed up with the whole system and player kind of thing is people don't think that Brady is – you know the, the type of quarterback people make him out to be because oh well it's the system it's not Brady you know Brady can't make these type of throws you know everybody likes to say that Brady's the dink and dunk quarterback of the league you know he throws these five six yard passes and lets the you know the receiver do the rest and you know you can that's a you know that's a fair assessment if you don't watch the Patriots all the time but if you're a fan that watches week in and week out you know you you know that that Brady is more than just a guy that throws, you know, screen passes to James White that go for 20 yards. Mm-hmm. So that's not that's not the case. I think you can go back to 2007, and granted it was Randy Moss, you know, in my opinion, the best receiver of all time next to Jerry Rice, but – Brady still has to make the throw and give him a chance to catch the ball. So, you know, with these, you know, 40, 50 yard passes you saw back in 07, and I believe throughout, you know, probably 2010 when he won his second MVP, I think those were kind of the, the four seasons that you can look at and say, all right, you know, these were the years where Brady, you know, made the big throws, made the long, long ball. You know, he's lost that touch over the course of his career, but. You know, he's 41 years old, and that's going to happen to anybody. Nobody you know, in professional sports can stay at the top of their game forever, but the fact that Brady's still doing what he's doing at his age, I think, is remarkable. And, you know, granted that that's part of the reason why they wanted Josh McDaniels back so bad was because of the chemistry that the two of them have together. And, you know, when he turned down the Colts job and, you know, everyone around New England heard he was coming back to be the offensive coordinator, they were ecstatic about it because of the fact that, you know, the, it's just it's great news for the Patriots because Brady has that connection. They're comfortable with each other. They know what they want to do in certain situations on third down with trick plays and all that kind of thing. We saw it in the 2014 AFC title game, you know, with the double pass play that's, that's since been made famous. So I, I would tell you that I think it's a little bit of both. I think it is, you know, the system and it is the player as well because, I, in my opinion, Brady is the best quarterback of all time and not because of, you know, the, the, the talent level, the athletic ability. You know, people like to bring up Aaron Rodgers and, you know, I understand i get that he's you know the, the premier athletic quarterback He can do everything he can run with his feet he can make the throws with his arm you know but the, the things that people don't measure about tom brady is is his leadership his heart his ability to read defenses you know all those things that 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 aren't physical that go into playing football i think that's what's not measured against brady uh, you know in certain situations and that's why people don't like to give him the benefit of the doubt
2: yeah and and well i think that he the reason I bring it up is, you know, you take somebody as you know as a, a Giants fan that I am. You look at somebody like an, an an Odell Beckham, right? And and the Giants are obviously have hit have hit very hard times. Um, it's likely at this point that that he'll remain on the roster. You know, is he is he only going to be known as a great wide receiver versus the best wide receiver of all time because he's going to be with them at a time when they when they've hit a true low point? Uh, and so I think that that. That has to be part of, part of the conversation is that some of these guys, frankly, they, they're, they're not used as effectively. Um, and perhaps they, they, they won't in the end of the day, they won't get their due because of the time that they actually played for the organization. You look at somebody like a Barry Sanders, right, for the Detroit Lions, right, probably known as one of the greatest running backs of all time. But let's imagine Barry Sanders on the Patriots. Versus Barry Sanders on the Detroit Lions, who it's probably before both of your times, but that was a that was a struggling organization, and and you know, not to say that they're not struggling now, but back then it was it was the Barry Sanders show. He was basically their only player, Um, and so I think, you know, while people definitely consider him to be one of the greatest, I think playing on that roster certainly hurt him
0: you can make that argument as well and and getting into a coach's point and a coach's aspect now people like to say that oh Brady wouldn't be the player that he is without Belichick and that's to your point about Mm -hmm. if Brady was on the Cleveland Browns per se if he would be the player that he is today and I think that he would still have the same talent level but not the same success but you know you can also make the case for Joe Montana being with Bill Walsh and you can make the case with Dan Marino being with with Shula and and all these different guys all these different quarterbacks you know Staubach with uh, Tom Landry you know all these different quarterbacks that have had success over the course of the years and won Super Bowls and you know they go hand in hand you're not going to win you're not going to win anything without a good coach and you know you're not going to win anything without you know a good quarterback because the quarterback is the helm of the entire the entire team and you know even Bill Belichick has said it it's a player's game you know the coaches can only do so much they make the game plan they put it in place but it's up to the players to go out on the field and execute.
1: Look, you talk about, you know, Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady, it's almost like Mike Trout on the Angels. Yes, the Packers are always going to be there, you know, in the playoffs, but they're not going to be that championship victory team like the New England Patriots, and that's really the difference between Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady. Yes, Aaron Rodgers is a phenomenal quarterback, but just Brennan, take leave take off the Patriot fan, stick it out the window and just picture Aaron Rodgers on the Patriots if Tom Brady didn't exist. Aaron Rodgers would be the same equivalent to Tom Brady. Imagine if Aaron Rodgers maybe won out of you know, one out of the three or four Super Bowls that the Patriots lost. Imagine if Aaron Rodgers defeated the Giants one out of the two times. Aaron Rodgers would be maybe even better than Tom Brady if he existed. It goes back to the point Mike Trout is the greatest baseball player on this current roster. You know, overall, he's still very young. And he's playing on the Angels that really they're starting to get there, but they're not there yet. It's kind of like the train is coming, you can hear the train whistling, but they're not quite there yet. Um, It goes back to imagine it goes back to the point Aaron Rodgers could very well be the greatest quarterback of all time. He might be playing six or seven more years than Tom Brady now. So you look at that and, you know, what happens if 10 years from now, Rodgers could, you know, seven years from now, Rodgers is still playing and he's surpassing Brady's records. What are the Packers win the next Super Bowls? You know, a couple of Super Bowls before you know, he retires. Then it changes the whole conversation.
0: No, well, I, I agree with you. If Rodgers can find a way to, you know, rally the troops in Green Bay and, and get them to a couple Super Bowls and come out on top, then I think the conversation changes. I think you're absolutely right. But right now, you, I think you have to wait until Brady retires and let Rodgers finish out his career and then... You have to look at the two time periods, and it, right now it's not, it's not a fair time comparison because Rodgers is still, you know, five or six years behind Brady. Rodgers is, I believe, 33, 34 years old right now, so he still has, you know, a ways to go to catch up to Brady, so when their two careers are over, I think that's when you can make the fair assessment of, okay, who had the better career, you know, as far as success goes, obviously right now it's Brady, and I think it always will be Brady. I don't foresee Rodgers getting to a Super Bowl and, and winning, so... And really this is the other thing that goes back to, you know, Brady being a team player and the things that aren't measured is Brady took took pay cut after pay cut after pay cut you know t- in order to help the team whereas you saw Rodgers in this past offseason soak up 140 million dollar contract for himself and then people look at the Packers and say oh well Rodgers doesn't have the help well what's his fault if he really cared about winning and he wanted to be at the top of the ladder then you you know you, you sacrifice for the good of the team and I understand he has Jimmy Graham and he has Devontae Adams and he has Randall Cobb and you know all those guys on on his offensive with him but that's not enough. They have, no, they have no sign of a defense whatsoever. And granted, the Patriots don't either. But the Patriots have a front seven that can somewhat generate pressure on the quarterback. And in Green Bay, I think it's a little bit different because all those guys, I think, are under 29 years old. They don't have anyone on that defense that is a veteran, so to speak. So uh, that's another thing the Patriots have been so good at is bringing in these veterans, like Dean Drucker mentioned at the end of their careers and turning them into guys that, that will buy in and go get a ring. And, and you know, the guys are passionate at, at the end of the careers and that's what you play the sport for is to win championships. And if you don't win a championship and you have a spot at the end of your career, you, you know, sign a one-year deal somewhere, it's going to be in new England because of the success level they've had for so many years.
2: And Brady, you mentioned again, just about, about the contract again, you know, it, it, it I talked about again in this era of free agency and we're, and we're, and I know that we're crossing sports right now, but I think that's, you know, you bring up a, a perfect example, like a Mike Trout when he becomes a free agent, he's not staying in Anaheim. Uh, you know, you look at those guys, some of those guys, first of all, well, Mike Trout's a New Jersey guy. So he's, he's either signing with, let's be honest. I, I think it's either going to be the Phillies, the Mets or the Yankees, really whoever offers him the most money. I think that's where his heart is, is, is back on the East coast and some of these guys, frankly, aren't looked at as much as they should because most of us have gone bed, to bed by the time that they're, you know, excelling. And Mike Trout is certainly one of the, the great players in baseball. But I would be shocked when he becomes a free agent if he stays on the West Coast, I think, or, or you throw the Red Sox in the, in the mix. He is absolutely, in my mind, going to come back to a team on the East Coast. I think that's where he was born. That's where he was raised. And I understand that certainly about the ring and who throws them the most money, but you've got teams on the East coast that are always, you know, uh, one of the top three payrolls in, in baseball uh, with the Yankees and, and the Red Sox. And and I know the Phillies, they're talking about potentially getting Harper Machado or both. So clearly that organization is looking to spend, you know, I, I think this is why I'm so impressed with what the Patriots have been able to do because it's just, and I understand the NFL salary cap and baseball are totally different. We're talking money, right? Um, but at the same time, it's still impressive the fact that they're able to to just put these pieces in year after year and and, and never miss a beat, regardless of of uh, you know how different the, the the sports are with regard to that. It, it's just incredible the the way that Belichick and Brady have done this.
1: I have two things right here. Um, you could look at another sport, the NBA. You could kind of see Tom Brady could be the Michael Jordan, and then Aaron Rodgers could be almost the LeBron James, or vice versa. Tom Brady could be the Kobe Bryant, or and then Aaron Rodgers could be the LeBron James. They're kind of just a few years apart where once one retires, they kind of take over that reign, the face of the NFL. My other point is, look, um, these two players are so crucial and when Derek Jeter retired and the Yankees brought in Didi Gregorius, everyone was trying to fill the shoes of Derek Jeter. Let Didi Gregorius be D.D. Gregorius. Same thing for LeBron James. Let LeBron James be LeBron James. Let Steph Curry be Steph Curry. Don't compare him to Michael Jordan because he's not Tom Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan's Michael Jordan. LeBron James is LeBron James. Let these players be the players they are. Don't compare, you know, Aaron Judge to Babe Ruth. Let Aaron Judge be Aaron Judge. You know, that's what we stick to. We stick to the guys that we grew up with. We stick to the nostalgia of the greatest players in our time. And we try to fill the shoes of our childhood memory, all these fantastic players that we grew up loving and watching them play the sports that we loved. We don't kind of expand our mindset nowadays to... Respect a player, and, you know, everyone's different. And that's what's great about sports. Every single player in every other sport is just fantastic, and everything's differently. And that's what is great about all these other sports. You know, and just getting back to the point, just let Tom Brady—I know I'm contradicting myself here and kind of ruining the debating thing, but let Tom Brady be Tom Brady, and let Aaron Rodgers be Aaron Rodgers. I
0: think— Going back to your point, Alex, that was that was a great point being brought up there. And and to your comparison about LeBron kind of being in the shadow of Michael Jordan, you can kind of look at it the same way with Tom Brady being in the shadow of Joe Montana. When he came in, you know, all these guys that watched Michael Jordan, you know, back in the '80s and '90s in the NBA, he was the premier player. And even if you weren't a fan of the Chicago Bulls, if he was in town, you were trying to get tickets to that game to go see him because he's a once in a gener once in a lifetime player. It's much similar to what LeBron James is now. So the, th- the thing with that is when Brady was coming up through the ranks in, in 01 through 04, when he was really establishing himself as one of the, the best young quarterbacks in the league at the time, people didn't really want to see him take over because people, don't, people hang on to the fact of, that Joe Montana was the best quarterback of their generation. And people didn't want to see him lose that title. So, when Brady really made his run, I think that's why he's hated so much. And, you know, obviously, if you're a fan of a certain team and you're going up against one of the premier players in the sport, you know, you're going to want them to. to 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 not succeed because you don't want to obviously see your team lose but you're jealous of their success and I think that's why the Patriots have gotten so much hatred over the course of the years and that's why they've been accused of all these different things with with cheating and and you know Birdie's a system quarterback he's not as actually good as he is or as he seems on the field I think that's why the Patriots have received so much criticism and that's why they're so good at blocking out the noises because they know that they know they're good they're not going to come out and say that but they know that that they're better than a lot of the competition in the league they know that they've been doing it for 18 years and they know what works and what doesn't work so but th- I think that's another point you know that at, the, at their press conferences Dean Drucker you brought up yeah. earlier in the show that nobody says anything that makes headlines it's all business there and people come across with the impression that oh the Patriots don't have fun you know that they're not the kind of team that I'd want to play for they don't you know they don't have any fun playing football but when you're in a it's a business sports is a business and it might not seem like that because you know Everybody says, oh, baseball players get paid to play a kid's game. It's their living. It's what they're passionate about. That's how they make their money. That's how they put food on the table for their family. So at the end of the day, these guys are passionate about what they do. So it just really goes back to, you know, people don't want to lose the fact of their that their own team is is not superior anymore.
2: Well, I, I use the word uh jealousy before right i i think that one of the things that we experience um as as sports fans is that even when our our teams are are excelling is that they only have a certain window right and then that window closes and and for most teams that's about three to four years where you have a chance to win a championship and you and you hope at that time that they they capitalize um you know just a couple years ago the the Mets were in the world series and you know i had some people say to me oh well you know it's just great that they got there and i said no they have to win it, and, of course, they ended up losing. I was, at, I was at the clincher when they lost to Kansas City. I've been at a few clinchers. Um, but as a sports fan, I understand that there's so many things that can happen year to year um, that that window shuts very quickly. You know, you look at the, the, the Washington Nationals the last couple of years, right? People would go there and they'd say, oh, the Nationals are going to, you know, take this division, you know, likely go out of the World Series. Well, they traded Murphy at the end of the year. Harper's becoming a free agent. He's not signing in Washington again. That franchise window has already closed. Um, So that, to me, again, you look at the Dodgers, right? Back-to-back World Series. It looks, at at least at this point, that they're going to lose back-to-back World Series. Is it a given the Dodgers will be back in the World Series again next year? Absolutely not. So I think, again, that's why the jealousy thing comes up is that the Patriots just win year after year after year. And it's a foregone conclusion. You know, as a fan like myself, I've gotten to a point now where, you know, for, for certain seasons I get about halfway through and I'm like, well, I guess it's baseball season now, or, well, I guess it's football season now. Um, as a Patriots fan, you're you're looking forward to printing your playoff tickets every single year. That just does not happen in in professional sports. And so, um, you know, Brandon, to, to your credit, like I, I brought up the thing about Tom Brady to get you riled up because I know it would for every Patriots fan. Um, but really, at the end of the day, um, what they do – uh, year after year, and y- you go into the season, you might as well put the little asterisk that says division champion uh, b- before the season even starts. Um, and you could even say that the big it's the Patriots are that good. The rest of the division is so bad. Uh, it's probably a little of both. Um, but it really, it just it's incredible um, the way that they have just become a, a juggernaut. And one thing I have to say because I know we're we're gonna move on, but we've been talking about football here. Um, I have to say, you know, we're, we're talking about the Bills. So I got to stay in central New York for a second. Uh, you know, as a alum, proud alumnus this morning, Syracuse uh, Clinch became bowl eligible last night, first time since 2013. Um, the, I guess the lo- second longest drought of a Power Five team. So, very proud alumnus today. Uh, congratulations to Coach Dino Babers and John, John Wildhack, who's the AD of Syracuse. If you're listening, sign him to a long-term deal, uh, go Orange. Had to throw that in there.
1: And I know we'll be talking about uh, the Syracuse basketball in the last segment of the show. They just recruited Joe the Third from upstate New York, and I'm actually very good friends with him. So it's kind of interesting to be friends with a future Syracuse basketball player. You
2: know, Alex, one thing that I, that I tell every single student on this campus is that the one thing that you need to understand is that the older you get, the smaller the world becomes, right? And it's why I always preach to everyone, you should respect every person you meet, you should treat every single person with kindness because you just don't know how connected all of us are. A uh, perfect example of this, of course, I'm, you know, I'm a, a Syracuse fanatic and, of course, a Dean College fanatic. Uh, but, uh, you know, talking with Alex all of a sudden the, this morning, and, of course, you know, the Syracuse just lands Joe Girard, and thank God he picked Syracuse over Duke, um, and we won't go to there. That's that's a very different segment. Um, but all of a sudden, you know, Alex says, well, do you know Joe Girard? And I said, are you kidding me? That's the guy that lights up for 50 a night, and I'm thrilled that he just became part of the uh, – 2019 recruiting class. And Alex said, Oh, I know him. Uh, you know, these types of things, uh, are, are just obviously, uh, things that I say to, to every single student is we're, we're all connected. Um, and it's, it's one of the great things about, um, you know, certainly about sports and, um, you know, I'm certainly, I can't wait for him to uh, be reigning threes, in the Carrier Dome next to uh, Buddy Bayheim, who's part of uh, this freshman class, uh, Jim Beheim's son Buddy is now uh, is now joined the, the team, and he had 19 in his first uh, first uh, exhibition game. So he and Joe, he and Joe are going to be hooking up uh, next year in the dome, and I, I I just can't wait.
0: I can tell you guys are excited about the college basketball season coming up, so we can't wait until March, Dean Drucker. Maybe we'll have you on again for March Madness. But right now, we're going to take a quick break. We got about 35 minutes left in the show. Stay with us right here on
1: Talk of the Town. And welcome back to Talk of the Town here. My name is Alex Fuse alongside the Dean of Students here at Dean College, Dean Drucker. And I'm just going to, we are doing the Fusion News segment as if you are listening to the show, if you watch Fusion News, it's my own personal podcast where I interview guests and I'm happy to have you on about the Fusion News segment here on Talk of the Town. And you've been here for about seven and a half years as a Dean of Students here at Dean College, you know, and what really brought you to Dean?
2: So, yeah, it's very interesting. Um, you know, this is where, again, I, I talk with students all the time about sort of, uh, you know, expect the unexpected. So I had um, I, uh, hey, just so people know, by the way, in college, I did change my major. So for all you uh, parents out there who are worried about your her student who changes their major, um, changed my major to psychology when I was uh, when I was in school, ended up getting my uh, my master's degree in education. Uh, I was actually in mental health counseling. I was a clinician for for a few years uh, and then ended up landing a job in student life uh, at a very small school in Boston. and um, honestly, wasn't that familiar with the position, but it's it seemed like it was going to be a good fit for me in terms of uh, student affairs when i when I interviewed about the position, they said, "Well, it's sort of somebody who's going to do be a jack of all trades outside of the classroom." And I thought that that fit my my personality uh, quite well. So uh, it was a very small school. We were able to take on a lot of different responsibilities. so, um, I was uh, at the time overseeing student government. I was overseeing their activities, their, their events at the college um, on and off campus. Um, and actually, it, um, at the time, they didn't have an athletic program, and so I, I decided I was going to start an athletic program there. And so um, I, be, I anointed myself as the athletic, athletic director and started a, um, a soccer and basketball program and um, actually made some connections um at my former institution who were both, uh, in admissions, uh, here at Dean college. Um, and also the, uh, the former athletic director, um, at Dean. And, um, it was interesting because, uh, somebody that I'd, I'd spoken with Kathleen McKenna who worked at Dean, she came up to me one day when we were working at my former institution. She said, you know, I, I think you'd be a great fit at Dean college. Um, and to be honest at the time, didn't, didn't know much about it. And a lot of that's because I'm uh, from a different state. Um, and, uh, I said, well, I, you know, I, I definitely want to check it out. I'd, I'd been at my former institution for about ten years. Felt like it was um, definitely uh, time for a change. Important to take on. You know, I always think it's important to take on take on new challenges, take on new risks. Um, and uh, so I did know a couple of people here, at Dean, uh, and then uh, just very fortunate to to land the position. And um, you know, this when I came here, Dean's actually a, a larger school than I had uh, come from, and uh, just being able to take on. Uh, student affairs and uh, look at being able to to work with students from orientation to their first year all the th- all the way through commencement and see the maturation that exists is, is just I, I say to people all the time I, I really feel like not only am I passionate about my job um, but I feel like you know to work at a to work in higher education there's just no other job uh, where you get to see people that will come in, as as new students and the anxieties that come with that, and and what's what's gonna what what's gonna uh you know become my passion when I when I'm in college? Um, am I gonna change my major? Who are gonna be my friends? Who's gonna be my roommate? Um, and then just a few short years later, because I always say college is the four fastest years of your life. Um, wa- watching students walk across that stage of commencement, and truly knowing, especially at a place um, like Dean, that you truly have relationships with those students it's not a school of 10 15000 people where clearly you're cheering people on for their accomplishment uh you've gotten to know so many of those students um and hopefully had at least some impact um on their life on their decisions um and uh You know, it really it's 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 been an extraordinary uh, seven
1: years. You brought up student life in that you have past experience in and you're doing that now. How crucial is it for you, as especially the dean of students and just your colleagues as well? You look at, you know, everyone involved in this. How crucial is it to engage a student into the student life here at college, knowing that, okay, this is make or break. This is where you're finally away from home, from your family. You're kind of expanding out in your own life, kind of embarking in your own future by yourself. You know, how crucial is that for a student kind of really just trying to create, jumpstart their future in their future career?
2: Well, again, I, I think when you when you look at college, um, obviously, the, the academic piece is, is critical. Um, and, and I don't think anybody would deny, deny that. But When you're looking at the college experience, it truly is the academic and the social experience. Um, even when I look at my my own experience as, as an undergrad, um, not to say that I didn't find my academics incredibly valuable, um, but a lot of the memories that I made were were outside the classroom. And I think that part has not changed as much as higher edu- um, excuse me, higher education has changed, and maybe we're focusing on different topics. Um, at the end of the day, when you think back to um, some of the the clubs that you've been able to join, um, look at you know the radio show that you guys are running right right at the moment, uh, these will be things that you will never forget. And, and, and I, I take a lot of pride, and I think my staff does as well, um, in trying to focus every single year on how do we make that student experience better. Um, I think the one thing you can never do in student affairs is ever be nonchalant. You can't ever be satisfied um, because we're trying to enhance the student experience every single year. And that's with clubs. Organizations, intramurals, activities, events, um, even the academic clubs—you um, know these these are all things that um, that in athletics uh, we certainly not only take seriously, but we understand that this is the fulfillment. This is a big part of of the experience that that students will create for themselves, and hopefully the other part of it too is hopefully you're also continuing to create a network of people that will always. Be in your corner. Um, you don't know. It could be 10, 15 years down the road uh, when you're giving me a phone call to say, hey, can you give me a reference for this? Um, and and so obviously faculty and professors play a huge part in that. Um, but I think student affairs staff and student development, um, we get we get just as excited about that, um, I think, as they do.
1: You bring up that just the fact that the colleagues here and the staff here take so much pride in the students' care. And Dean College is different from any other college, in my perspective. You know, being here on the sports broadcasting camp, I kind of got to witness something different. You know, I, I personally, this is the only college I've attended, but just seeing how different Dean College is from other colleges just from talking to other students. A lot of students that I'm friends with aren't really having a great time at their college. But I have to say my personal experience here, it's gonna be different for everyone here, but my personal this has been the best, you know, three months or so out of my life. You know, this has really been an outstanding experience for me personally. So looking at that, you know, you talk about the highlights here, but what is something that you want to take that maybe Dean College doesn't have at the time and really embark that in your new maybe in the next coming years for Dean College?
2: Uh, well I think again we we've talked a lot about um, you know the baccalaureate culture here at Dean uh, you know since I've arrived in that seven and a half years uh, Dean uh, not to say that it's uh, you know not always ex- moving forward and experience change but you look at the 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 addition of the baccalaureate programs the move to the NCA division three um, this has been an incredible time to be at this college and looking at uh, how many uh, the certainly the the numbers of our students that are now um, spending four years here, so when I talk about the the student experience, um, you know, baccalaureate culture, we we we've ha- certainly had baccalaureate degrees at Dean for a number of years now, um, dating back to the '90s with with dance. But certainly, now that we know that um, certainly many many more of our students are going to be here for four years, um, that's been a great challenge uh, to take on for for our entire entire staff. Is that how do we make each year? Look different for students. Um, your first year here, your sophomore year, your junior year, senior year. Um, how do we? How do we? In, in enhance the activities. How do we? How do we uh, provide additional offerings? How do we? How do we make the events even bigger? We we focused this year on a lot more live entertainment um, than we've done in the past. And we've heard from a lot of this. Honestly, has come from student focus groups and things. We we're always um, asking students about their likes, their dislikes, their interests, what we can bring. Um, to the college perhaps that, um, that they're interested in, that they want to see, maybe that they've seen at one of their uh, friend's schools. Um, and, and I think that we, we look at that as, um, as a real challenge for us, is how do we continue to improve upon that every single year? Um, because even as a small college, um, we don't look at it that way. You know, that the, yeah, there's, there's always going to be, um, I, th- I think, you know, people might have the, the differences that exist between the budget between a small school and a big school. Um, I think think that just allows us to be more creative, to be perfectly honest with you.
1: Yeah, like you just said, the RSA group here at Dean College, they had a kind of low-budget haunted house, but it was the second most attended event this semester. So you look at that, everyone had fun at that haunted house here on campus, and just it goes back to what Dean College, you know, John Rook in one of the PSAs here, you know, we take sports and we run them here at Dean College. That's his slogan at the end of the PSA. And that's what really Dean College is. They're allowing the students here to run their thing. Yes, the, uh, there's always, you know, advisors and, you know, teachers, professors looking over you and kind of make sure and you're staying in your, you know, make sure you're safe and all that stuff. But they're kind of a lot, they're giving you the ball more than they would in any other college. Or in high school as well, they're giving you the ball to create something special. So here at Dean College, you know, what is something special here that means to you?
2: Oh, you know, I, from from, uh, you know, my, my own perspective, I, again, I think, um, you know, living on campus and being able to be here um, and be present at student activities and events is is really important to me. You know, I attended uh, as an undergrad large university. I have to be perfectly honest, I didn't even know that the Dean of Students position existed. Uh, it wasn't until I became a professional. Um, and, and for me, um, it's, it's all about connection with students. You know, we talk about some of the opportunities that may be available to you on a small campus. I'm so fortunate that I get to serve as the, the PA announcer for, for football here, Dean. I've done men's and women's basketball as well. Um, I just don't think there's too many places where the Dean of Students uh, might also be supportive in that role. And for me, it's it's more than just a hobby. I want the student athletes to see that I'm there, to see that I'm sub- there supporting them. Um, you know, with with the plays and, and the musicals. Um, where else could you walk um, to over to uh, and see extraordinary talent uh, that? You know, frankly, for most people, it would be paying an exorbitant amount of money to go in, into Boston. And we've got the amount of talent with regard to dance, with theater um, right here on campus. I think for me, I, I talk about all the time to family and friends. You just don't have those types of opportunities at a, at a lot of schools. Um, and it's not even, you know, for me, it's, you know, I just consider it a bonus to what I that
1: I get to do every single day. Mm-hmm. And I have to give you credit. I came here at the new sort orientation when it was pouring rain outside, and I just see you standing out there the entire day, soaking wet. You know, just like the rest of us. And in any other school, you know, that goes back to you don't really see the dean of students, especially out there helping the families. It also gets out to the point where you don't really see the president that much too. And Dr. Paula Rooney is always out there helping out the students as well. So uh,
2: I basically told the orientation leaders that morning, uh, yes, because it, it was it was an absolute deluge um, in the parking lot. And I said, if the families and new students are going to get soaking wet, then I'm going to get soaking wet, too. Um, That's that I think is is part of the enjoyment. And I have to say that was also, I think, a testament to New England, because half the families would say, hey, do you want to shuttle right over to campus? And they'd say, no, we're fine. Well, they're just literally drenched. Um, And and for me, though, that that's part of the uniqueness of Dean. Um, But I said, yeah, I'm not going to I'm not going to stand under a tent. We had tents there. I'm not going to stand under an umbrella. Um, If our new students and parents can get soaking wet, um, I can do I can do that, too, Um, because I I think it's 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 part of who we are. Um, And I think, you know, it's ingrained if you're coming to Dean. um, And I think we're we're very open to people, too. When we interview even people come aboard for for new jobs here is that this place, it's all in. Uh, You make that decision when when you come here that. You're not going to operate in a silo, um, you know, whether it's the meetings, the, you know, when we're coming up with uh, events and stuff. We, we want the creativity from from all of our staff
1: um, because we all believe that it, it, it takes a village. Last question before we wrap up this segment here. Dean College was formerly Dean Junior College, a two year school. They're now just really just making the whole push into really trying to. Leave that memory, get the, rid of that memory out of people's minds, per se, as there's nothing junior about Dean College. That's a new slogan here, and I really like it because as a student here, I can see myself be here, being here for four years. So just taking that aspect of it, you know, how crucial is it for Dean College to really cement themselves as a four-year private small school here in Massachusetts?
2: Yeah, I I think that is the challenge um, is uh, we know that, too, is that uh, private small colleges, especially when you're looking at the demographics in the next 10 years, they're talking about the numbers of students that are going to college. And even here in the Northeast is going to get smaller. Um, So once again, that that is where it's incumbent upon everybody um, who's here to understand that. What we've done, the transition we've made, um, it, it's worked well. Um, I think we're seeing that students are, are are happy being here, but that's not an opportunity for us to relax. If anything, it should be more invigorating to say, um, "How do we then entice um, you know the next generation of students?" You know, I'm looking at you know even the two of you guys, Brandon and Alex, right. You guys could be the the spearhead for our our broadcasting program, right? Communications, um, speaking to to new students who who are prospective students who are saying to themselves, "Could I be hosting a radio show on Sunday mornings?" Um, and and you guys could be the the pioneers, the catalysts um, for a whole new group of students coming here. Um, and these types of opportunities, you know, just they they didn't exist in in the past um, with with the four year program. And so I think. You know, you guys, whether you even recognize it or not, because, um, you know, even as a first-year student, this time is going to move very quickly. And very, very soon, you'll be the, the role models that young people who are touring this campus are going to say, I want to be that person. Uh, I want to be the person in the booth. And and I think that's what we all aspire to um, in terms of how we work with our students is helping every single student to build confidence, um, to know that coming in the door, you're not going to know what you get. You know, you're going to do for a lifetime. Most people, you know, kind of come in and they have that, you know, everyone, unfortunately, throws that question. What are you going to do for a living? Um, as an 18 year old, frankly, you really shouldn't know. Um, and, and not too many people do. Um, and I think that's what's so great about Dean is you have an opportunity to try out so many different things here um, to, to really figure out where is your passion. And I think that that's something that is really beneficial to the small classroom size, um, to the fact that, you know, your, your student affairs staff is going to be at activities, events. This is an opportunity to build relationships um, that, you know, not only would be long-lasting, but to really get some really sound advice about uh, where am I going from here and, you know, what excites me. Because I say at the, end of the jo- at the end of the day, I always say to people, you should be looking for a career and not a job. You know, and people ask me, you know, how do you look at being the dean of students? The easiest answer I can give people is this is a career, Um, and that's because I'm passionate about it. If it was something where every single Sunday night I said, oh, my God, I can't believe I have to go back to work tomorrow, I look at that as a job. Um, A career is something that you see yourself doing every single day, and you're passionate about it, and you want to get better at what you're doing every day. And that's what I want students um, to take from their four years here.
1: Well, Dean Drucker, I want to say thank you for joining me in this segment and in the show as well. We'll be right back with another quick PSA. We'll break down the power rankings, and then we'll also talk some Syracuse, Joe Girard III, also more into that as well. Thanks again, and we'll be right back.
0: Welcome back here on Talk of the Town. Alex, thank you for that great interview with Dean Drucker, and and Dean Drucker just— how you've really come into Dean and just helped expand this entire, really, college with the, all the different programs that are being added now and the sports broadcasting program being added as well. It's really just phenomenal how this college is going to grow, and I can't wait to to spend my last two 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 and a half years here now.
2: Well, I, I think it is, it is terrific to see these, especially on the academic side, um, you know, having uh, even in my high school days uh, – that had I hosted a uh, morning uh, radio show, uh, and then had the opportunity to also do some play-by-play. So um, this is a great opportunity um, for me to even join join you guys this morning. I I really love radio quite a
0: bit. Mm-hmm. Well, this is one of our more fun segments here on the show, the weekly power rankings. Alex, I'm going to start with you. Who's your number one this week?
1: The number one is obviously going to be the, the Rams. I'm sorry, I know it, it's very. Of a given, isn't yeah. It? They're seven and no. they're the only undefeated team in the NFL right at this point. And just really, you know, I've said this week in and week out if it's not going to be the Patriots win the Super Bowl this year, it's going to be the Rams. I'm it just is.
2: So, I guess the, the one team though that I would still throw in there is the Kansas City Chiefs. I, I tell you, and, and certainly I understand that Mahomes is young, and in the end of the day, he'll probably make some young mistakes. But you watch that team play, and I'll tell you, talk about you, you got Hunt, Hill. Kelsey, I mean, the the weapons, and then Mahomes himself, um, you know, I think most uh, teams are, are looking for that type of uh, quarterback. And of course, I'll throw in their son of a former Mets pitcher. Of course, he wore his jersey to, uh, to the locker room last weekend. Um, but really, I, I I can't say enough about, about the Chiefs. And when you're looking at, you know, a, a one game, you know, because that's what the NFL is, right? We're not talking about best of seven. It's, it's one game take all um, in the playoffs. And man, I think that team is very difficult to defend. So I, I would love, selfishly, and if you're an NFL fan, you need to see a Patriots-Chiefs AFC championship game. I, I really I think that would be um, should just, you know, you're looking at Brady, who's, yeah, okay, you know, towards the end of his career, but, but the Patriots, of course, have, have ruled the NFL for, for the, you know, the past 15 years um, up against the, the up-and-coming Chiefs. Uh, I, I think you have to, as a fan, you have to want that game to happen
1: especially after seeing the Patriots and Chiefs a few weeks ago. You know, it was just an instant classic game. And the Patriots, you have to give them credit where credit is due. They make the NFL interesting and entertaining. And the Patriots, week in and week out, they have these entertaining classic games. Uh, If you're, you know, the Patriots commissioner, you know, Goodell, you have to be happy with the Patriots knowing that, okay, look, the ratings is huge, and the NFL's ratings has been down recently. So, um, just looking at that standpoint, it seems like any game the Patriots are in, it's going to be an exciting game.
2: Well, I have to say obviously the you know the, the team I root for their their season is is long over. Um, but I think that that's what's that that's what is great about the NFL. Um, as as much as I've enjoyed the World Series, and you know people of course uh, I think feel equally um, about uh, the NBA and and the NHL. I think one of the great things about the NFL is that it's it's winner take all, right? Every single week, if you don't if you don't bring your A game, your season's over. And um, so I think as a, as a, a fan of the NFL, you know, there's nothing like the the you just get past the the holidays, right? And um, you get the excitement of uh, you know what you thought was going to happen. Um, all of a sudden, this team that comes in, let's say the Rams, right? That you think that they're going to walk through waltz through the playoffs, and all of a sudden, it's the end of the first quarter and. They're down 14-3, and you're like, oh, my God, I've got to watch the end of this. Um, and I think that's what's always so alluring about about the NFL is that it's just it's one game.
0: Absolutely. My number one is the Rams as well at 7-0. and They're playing Green Bay this week, so it could be a bit of a tough matchup. We talked about Aaron Rodgers earlier on in the show and how he's done so many extraordinary things, and this would just be another one to add to the list if he can top these 7-0 and undefeated Rams, who many people think can run the table. But skipping down to number two now, my number two is the New Orleans Saints. They're coming in at 5-1. and Another tough game against Minnesota this week, but I think what Drew Brees and Alvin Kamara have done on the offensive side of the ball, and even the secondary holding things together after that catastrophe 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 last year in the nfc divisional round Uh, that that can scar a franchise and you know you don't really bounce back from you know bad memories like that too quickly but the saints have really been phenomenal this season and drew Brees, of course setting the all-time passing yards record and he's chasing down the all-time touchdowns passing record as well along with tom brady those two are neck and neck three and four on that list so uh, the Saints are my number two. I think they've been great this year.
2: Uh, I think you know, we, we obviously talked uh, quite a bit about uh, Brady and Rogers, and obviously you can't have that conversation without talking about Drew Brees um, and what he's been able to do um, with the Saints. I think the Achilles heel for the Saints every year, and I, and I know people say that it's gotten better, but, but that defense is just always full of holes, um, and, and it worries me um, if, if you're a Saints fan. And, and I know uh, they've, they certainly have gotten better this year. Um, and any time the ball is in, in Bree's hands in the fourth quarter and, and you, need, you need points, I think you're, you're in a good, good position to do so. Um, but that Saints defense, it seems like year in and year out, uh, just they, they just can't seem to get it done. And, and I have to wonder the same. I mean, Kamara, Dries, you know what you're getting out of them. Uh, but
1: that, that defense, I, I think, still concerns me. Um, number two for me is also the Saints. And I feel like Simon Cowell on America's Got Talent when the time is clicking down and we're running out of time here. So I'm just going to go right on to number three. And by the way, the Saints are just going to be marching in. I always say that every week. Um, number three for me is going to be the New England Patriots. I think um, I complimented this. You know, is it going to be the Chiefs or the Patriots? And the Patriots have defeated the Chiefs already this season. So obviously number three would have to be the New England Patriots. They are on the rise. I think this is where Brady gets comfortable. And this is when every – other NFL team needs to watch out for the Patriots.
0: Number three for me as well is the New England Patriots. I know they're 5-2. and two. I know they struggled against the Bears last week and almost blew the lead, but I think the Patriots, their offense is all the way back. It's just like I said earlier on in the show, the defense needs to work itself out, but they should pick up a win in Buffalo this week. Jumping down to number four now, the Kansas City Chiefs. They're 6-1, and one, and I know number four on the power rankings might seem a bit low, but Alex, you just mentioned the Patriots did defeat the Chiefs earlier on in the season, and I'm still not completely sold on them. Uh, Dean Drucker, I know you mentioned Pat Mahomes and that high-powered offense, but... You know, I mentioned a couple weeks ago when the Patriots and Chiefs had their matchup on Sunday Night Football, if the Chiefs had lost that game, I I, I would have taken their 5-0 and start as a fluke, and they did lose. So I think that with the struggling, the way the Patriots were struggling, I think that the Chiefs, with all the hype surrounding them, they probably should have beaten the Patriots. And, you know, the, I know that they, they made it a, a great game and they came up just short, and you know, I can't wait to potentially see a rematch later on down the line, but... I'm not still completely sold on them, and going into Denver this week, it's going to be a tough one. And, and Denver is not an easy place to play whatsoever.
2: Right. Well, and we're talking, you know, the the top five week to week. I think this is where uh, record really comes into play. We talked about a little bit about home field advantage before. Arrowhead is a difficult place to play, and I think if the Chiefs continue to pile up wins and they get some home playoff games, I think they're going to be a very difficult out. Um, as you mentioned before, I think if the, if the Chiefs have to go on the road. That would be just, I think, its own drama in the sense of is Mahones going to have the head uh, to deal, uh, you know, with a visiting uh, playoff game? Uh, but I think if the Chiefs continue to win, um, I think if they get some home games in the playoffs, they could be a very difficult out. Look, the
1: Chiefs had a very, you know, the Patriots had a very difficult time with the Chiefs at home, and that you bring up a great point. If you're the Patriots and you have to play the Chiefs before you get this to the Super Bowl. You have to be very nervous as a Patriot fan or even, look, Tom Brady – is trying to end his career off on a great note, and we said this last year. If Tom Brady wins the Super Bowl last season, I said he would retire. And it just gets back to the point where now you wonder if Tom Brady just wants to retire. He just wants to maybe win that last Super Bowl before he can decide. Okay, I'm 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 done with this, and I'm on with my life. I'm gonna go wear my Uggs and just kick my feet up in the air, and you know continue watching whatever team he's gonna you know watch after that, or maybe not. Maybe it'll be like the Derek Jeter and not care about football anymore. But just getting back to the point, look, Tom Brady, you know he's greatest quarterback of all time. But number four for me would also have to be the Chiefs. I think I, I think I already said that. But yeah, number four for me with were the Chiefs.
0: Number five for me is going to be a surprise to both of you, I think, and it's a team from the NFC East. And if you can think who picked up a win last week, it's the Washington Redskins. And it might come as a bit of a surprise to everyone that's listening as well. But the Redskins are four and two, and they're currently at the top of the NFC East. And when you look at it, not many people give Alex Smith credit for what he's done down there in Washington. You know, making the transition from Kansas City down to Washington isn't an easy one at all. So, with the amount of injuries they've had so far this season, they've had running back problems, and they picked up Adrian Peterson and really implemented them pretty nicely into that offense and he's really kind of re- revived his career down there and I think Washington is kind of a team flying under the radar right now. If if they can make a few moves and pick up some guys and maybe in free agency they have some offensive line troubles, but if they can really establish themselves as a running team, I think that they they could make some noise in the NFC playoffs.
1: You know, in number 5 for me usually is the Cleveland Browns. I I don't know. I haven't brought this up to you, but um I coined the phrase back when the Browns were riding the wave I'm jumping on the Mayflower. Instead of the bandwagon, I'm hopping on the Mayflower. But I've kind of, the Mayflower has seen sunk. <laughs> so that ship has sunk, and I think it's definitely not going to be the Browns today. I'm going to just say the Los Angeles Chargers. I know we're running out of time here, but I, I don't know. It's tough because, you know, I was complimenting the Browns, but they lost. So I don't know. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say the Chargers.
2: I think when you're looking at uh, complete teams, and I, I know they've been really up and down this year, um, but, but I, I think you got to throw in the Minnesota Vikings, um, to be honest with you. I, and, and I think head-to-head against the Redskins, i probably give the Vikings an edge. But, you know, Brandon, I'm not necessarily going to disagree with you, and I tell you the reason why is because I think number five could probably be, uh, be about 12 different teams um, because I also think it speaks to the mediocrity of the NFL, which is how they want it, which is terrific, which is one year your team can go 5-11, and 11, Next year, you go at eleven and five, and you're a playoff team. Um, so I think really that number five slot, you could probably throw about ten different teams in there, and I think it would be difficult to argue um, because I think to be to be honest with you, they might all have some positives, but they all have glaring weaknesses as well. Um, but I think again, in today's day, day and age, I think that that's exactly where the NFL and, and Goodell want it.
1: You know, and before we have three minutes left in the show, and we also talked about how the last segment of the show was going to be either tweet of the week or story of the week. And Brendan and I were talking before the show started. The story of the week was going to be has to be Joe Jar the Third making his announcement two weeks ago about his commitment to Syracuse basketball. And I have to ask you this: I will be interviewing Joe Jar the Third this upcoming week. You know, do you have any specific question? I know I'm throwing this at you on the spot, but one question that you would love for me to ask Joe Jar the Third. About anything,
2: I think obviously you know that he he scores right now. He averages about fifty a game. Um, so I think it would it would probably be in, in the, along the lines of how do you think that you'll adapt? As we all know, that once you step on into the into the Carrier Dome, it becomes about the two three zone, right? And um, you know you're certainly going to get your looks, but you also they spread the ball around quite a bit. So I guess it would probably be. I'm not. I'm not really sure in high school what type of defense they play, but I can tell you, even if it's a zone, it's not Bayheim zone. Um, so I think it would be. How are you going to adjust? Um, how do you think that you'll adjust um, to that zone? Um, and then you know, really, it would be about um, you know what what he's looking most forward to. I, as we know, the one thing that um, that I used to love about. Uh, the Carrier Dome is that every year um, you're going to set the the league league attendance um, in term in terms of crowd because you can see 32,000 in there. Probably what he's looking most forward to because I would imagine I'm going to go go out on a limb here that even when you score 50 a game in a high school gym, probably a little bit different than playing in front of 32,000. Um, so maybe just adjustment to the zone and what he's lo- most looking forward to um, playing in a place that's as cavernous um, and as wild as the Carrier Dome.
0: Yeah, guys, just real quick before we wrap up the show here, uh, always watching March Madness Syracuse is is my team to watch because, you know – I know Syracuse is a great basketball you know, program, but they're always kind of the underdog in the games that they play, and that's what us sports fans are drawn to is the underdog story. So I'm always the guy that roots for Syracuse in any matchup that they play, especially when they played Ohio State, I believe if it was a few tournaments ago. They were matched up against Ohio State, and I can't stand any Ohio State athletic program. So, you know, I was rooting for Syracuse, you know, I was advocating for them a lot that day. So, you know, Syracuse is, is a great program. Joe Girard sounds like a great basketball player. Alex, I know you know him personally, so I,
1: I wish him the best of luck for me. Hey, Brennan, by the way, I'm an Ohio State football <laughs> fan, so I don't want to hear about Ohio State. I know we're done with the show now, but... Uh, oh. well, I can be excited for next week. All right.
2: Well, I, I think one of the things, Brandon, uh, going back to your your point, is that I think even though uh, Beheim year after year reloads, um, it's really those players don't get the same hype, frankly, that they do at Carolina and Duke. Um, and so I think what, what ends up happening is Beheim, sort of the same way we've been talking about Belichick all day, is that he gets sort of these long, wiry guys um, that make it very difficult to penetrate the zone. And so they kind of just hang around there in the ACC, not always necessarily up in the top three, four. But the challenge is you cannot replicate that zone. So when, again, we talked about this was the same thing before when we talked about the NFL, same thing in March Madness. When you only have one game to try to figure out that zone and you're not an ACC team and you don't get to play that twice a year, coaches say often is that you can watch as much tape as you want. It will be impossible to replicate that until you get out to see the length um, and how difficult it is to to play against um, you know that particular 2-3 uh, zone. So, I think that even when we don't have the, the flashy, sexy players that are always getting the, the cover of, of you know Sports Illustrated or, or the front of ESPN, I think at the end of the day, it's just very difficult to play against them when, when you only have 40 minutes to try to figure
0: it out. Well, guys, I think we can all agree that this was a great show today. I th- thank you, Dean Drucker, for coming in with us in the studio for the show today. We'd love to have you back. And you know, for any time you want to come back on, you're more than welcome.
2: I had a blast, guys. Thank you so much for having me on today. Yeah, thanks again for coming on.
0: Of course, and Alex and I will be here yet again next week for week number eight. I can't believe it's already week number eight of the show. We're almost done with this this semester. It's it's crazy how time flies by, but we are over our timeline right now, so we are going to have to end things right here. But enjoy the full slate of NFL games here on this NFL Sunday, and the Red Sox hopefully will be coming to you next Sunday talking about a World Series championship.
1: And former Patriot joining us next week on the show.
0: That's right, Sammy Morris. Coming on the show, along with Coach Terrell, the head coach of Dean College Football. We can't wait for that episode, but we're going to cut things off right here and say goodbye. Brendan Howe, and along with Alex Fuse and Dean Drucker, signing off.